podcast has bad words. <laughs> Buckle your seatbelts, patrons. Before we dive into this conversation, I called up Ryan and we started to have a conversation about the quarantine and how he's dealing with his anxieties as an extrovert. And then we started to have a little bit of a debate around when we should, quote, reopen the economy. And what we really mean by that is when should people go back to work and businesses start to open, et cetera, as I stress in this episode, which is a long one, but I think you'll find a lot of value in it. What I stress is that I don't care that much about the economy so much as I care about individual households. And I'm really worried about some people who are unable to work right now. And it's hard for me to just stay home and say, I think everyone should just stay home as well. Although I recognize that there are different points of view here. So what we did is we called up Dr. Paul Saladino, who has one particular point of view, and he presented some data. He doesn't seem to think that a lot of the, the coronavirus and the hysteria around it is as justified as other people might think, as other uh, experts might think, uh, although he himself clarified that he is not a virologist or an epidemiologist but he does have quite a bit of experience as a medical doctor. So he presented one case, uh, one set of facts. And then because I wasn't completely happy with just that one point of view, because Ryan and I take this pandemic very seriously, I wanted to present sort of the other side of that as well. So I called up my friend uh, Chris Kelly, Christopher Kelly from Nourish, Balance, Thrive. He works with a lot of experts and is one of the smartest people that I know. And he has a differing opinion from Dr. Paul Saladino. So he has some additional thoughts that I wanted to append to the back of this episode. I don't think we walk away, though, with any definitive answers. What Ryan and I are trying to do here is ask some important questions that lead to some answers, that lead to even better questions, which lead to even better answers. Because I feel like right now, and I express my frustration here, is we are drinking from a fire hose of, inf of information, and a lot of that is misinformation, or it's out-of-date information. Information is changing as we learn more. And so as things change, our beliefs and our opinions should change along with it. We need to avoid any sort of dogma, but at the same time, as I illustrate in the conclusion of this, we want to be very cautious. I know there are people like me who are immunosuppressed that even if the government opens everything up tomorrow, I'm going to do my best to, to stay home, to stay safe, because that makes the most sense for me. But I also want to be sensitive to people who are working right now. I want to be thankful to those people who are the frontline workers, whether you're working at a grocery store or in a hospital or anywhere else that is considered a, an essential service right now. I'm really grateful for you. But I'm also grateful to our Patreon supporters, the people who are listening to this right now, because you provide us this space to have these difficult conversations, not in public, but in this semi-private semi format. You allow us to toss around some ideas, to be wrong in real time, to correct ourselves, and to also consider different sides of different arguments. We want to be safe, we want to be cautious, but we also want to be inquisitive. And so we ask some difficult questions throughout this conversation. We, pre we present different sides of the pandemic, not to prescribe anything to you, but to try to prevent, or try to present rather, some information that will help you decide what is appropriate for you, your family, and your 
community. I really hope you enjoy and find value in this conversation. Hello, patrons. What's up, patrons? Thanks for joining us. Here we are. I'm on the phone here with, with Ryan Nicodemus. And um, so if you're watching this on the video, you'll see me. And then I don't know what Jordan's going to do. I think he'll have like a tin can in Ryan's hand or something. <laughs> what number day of what day is this of quarantine? Do you know what number this is? No, I mean, I'm calling this 40 days of quarantine, which is actually a bit redundant. We'll talk about the, the history of quarantine. You know, quarantine just means a 40 day period. I did and not know that. Interesting. Okay. So, so it, it uh, well, actually, we'll, we'll get into the, the, the sort of root of it, the romance root of it later. Mm-hmm. But um, the reason I'm calling it 40 days of quarantine is we've done 40 or we're in the process of doing, I think we have a few more. I got one today, a couple more tomorrow mm-hmm. of these quarantine conversations during quarantine. I think it's been over 40 days. We're recording this on Monday, April 27th, uh, 2020. Mm-hmm. And it's I been at least 40 days. Oh, it's been, yeah, it's been more. I think because we started before the whole shutdown. March tenth was our last day in the studio. Yeah, it's so like, March eleventh was the day we started asking the whole team to work from home. Yeah, I remember you sending me the podcast from Sam Harris before the the stay at home orders were put out, uh-huh. and it freaked me out so bad <laughs> from listening to his podcast that yeah, we kind of I think we started quarantine maybe a little sooner than what we were told to do. It's been so long since I've had a haircut in my hair. If you're watching some video, it doesn't look as absurd as it actually is right now. I've, I've done a good job of, of managing it, but it's... I'm just imagining is, you look like Tom Hanks from Castaway or something right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, uh, I've been shaving regularly. I get up and I get dressed. I mean, I, I, I keep a routine. I'll tell you, and you and I are going to have a conversation today. We're going to try and bring in Paul Saladino in, in a moment to talk about, you know, I want to figure out I think we disagree. We, I, actually, I think we agree on what we want. We and we even agree on the solution. I think we disagree on the implementation. And I know that sounds Maybe. a bit nuanced, and, and we can yeah. get into it. Yeah. Um. I I actually don't have a. Uh, how do we say this? I don't have a dog in this fight. I right. when I say I don't care what we do, what I mean is my life isn't going to be that affected either way. If we were to reopen the country 100 percent tomorrow, I don't right. think my life would be that affected because I don't. I'm still going to stay stay self quarantined uh, myself because I'm mm. immunosuppressed with the medication I'm on. So it makes sense for me regardless. Um, I just want to figure out, and I don't think we know, but the question we're going to be asking today is like, what is the appropriate next steps for us as individuals, as yeah. a country, as as a planet for for us? So I, I do want to get into that. It has affected uh, us though out how to- with the tour. It's affected us with the the documentary. So it does have a little bit of effect. But I. I totally understand what you're saying. Like we, uh, so as far as where we agree is, is uh, whether it opens up today or, or three months from now, our lives aren't dramatically affected, but there's certainly sure. some effects, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I look at those things as inconveniences Yes, because I feel like I'm, I'm thriving, even though today I, I didn't sleep much last night, but I'm still feeling great. I got up and, and, and I got on the Peloton this morning and I did my yoga routine and I, uh, I didn't write today for the first time in forever because uh, we just turned in our, our manuscript yesterday for Love People Use Things. Woo-hoo! Oh my God, 100,000 words, 101,000 actually. Yeah. Um, and I got to tell you, I, I need a break from writing. And mm. I, I generally don't say that because I really enjoy writing at least an hour a day, but up uh, the, over the, this quarantine, there are some days, quite a few 10 hour writing days. Mm. 
and it's just it's just it's chiseling away uh, where it's some of the best writing days i would write negative 1000 words mm-hmm. um or i'd go in to your sections and i would like try to massage the voice of it a little bit mm-hmm. to the advice that you were doing to mm-hmm. to um and, and some of it is like oh man I'm, I'm stressing over a comma here or there but like the the, the brain power is still there it's, it's still required and i feel like i need a bit of a, a break from that at least for a uh, a period of time. I need to set that aside before I can co- go back to it and start working on the actual edit. So we 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 sent it to the editor yesterday. And yeah. uh, oh, I, I sent it to our agent too, Ryan. I didn't tell you. This. He sent me a text yesterday morning. He said I woke up early and just happened to get your email. And I started reading the book. And he said I've got to tell you, man, um, this is way way better than what I expected from the proposal. Oh wow, that's amazing. And yeah, he's like I am just devouring this thing, and it's amazing the breadth of 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 what you've established with these seven different relationships and we Mm. we won't get too much into it right now. We'll, we'll do a lot more on that in the future, but uh, I do need a break, but we still need to finish this film. You mentioned that we're, we're working on trying to finish lessons now for Netflix. I've been talking to, to Netflix and uh, you saw the outline I sent yesterday in terms of timeline. The question is, how do we get the the final interviews that we need? Mm. And, and, and so we're still trying to work out the logistics for that. You're also working on, a budgeting course. So we've been using this time wisely, I feel like. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely, man. I, I feel good about what uh, what I've been able to get done in, in the the routines that I've, or the routine I've been able to get into. Um, it's uh, the, the most surprising thing for me is, okay, so when I broke my back, I was working out five to six times a week. I was in amazing shape, like some of the best shape I've been in the last like 10 or 15 years. And then I broke my back and everything went to hell. And ever mm-hmm. since then, I have not been able to get back into um, a, a decent workout routine. And mainly, it's 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 all my fault, right? Like, I mean, we all make excuses, but it has a lot to do with traveling and trying to come up with a routine while you're on the road. It's just very difficult for me. However, during this quarantine, I have I have gotten back into working out five to six days a week, uh, and it's all thanks to the quarantine. So, like, that's the one thing that really surprised me because. I was at first not really motivated to work out, but then I'm like, dude, if I'm going to sit here and do nothing, like I'm going to come out of this quarantine, you know, 20 pounds heavier, like I've got to do something. So I just started doing these little like YouTube, you know, workout videos. Uh, I took this 30 day challenge and I've been killing it, man. And then in Montana, we've been going on hikes and stuff. So I'm really, I'm just surprised at how much exercise I've actually been able to get uh, during quarantine. Yeah. I, it, it's funny. I, I've been doing the same thing. I've been lifting uh, a lot of weights. Yeah. I just have uh, a set of those like adjustable, uh, I think they're called power blocks. Yeah. Um, I just picture you at home lifting all the weights. <laughs> all of them. Bex, bring me and, more weights. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and um, yeah, it's been, yeah, I feel like I'm in much better shape. I'm feeling a lot better. I, um, yeah, I just hormonally things are adjusted. I've been working with this hormone doctor, Bex and I have, I've been doing, um, a little bit of testosterone cream, mm. so no like injections or anything like that. But that's mm. that's helped. I, I doubt my testosterone levels are anywhere near where you, where yours are. But I aspire <laughs> to one day have Nicodemus <laughs> level uh, libido and testosterone. Um, oh, but a curse uh, is there anything? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've actually I've learned that uh, <laughs> recently just by boosting it a little bit. Yeah. Um, he, I, 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 I've I've learned like oh wow like libido every single day mm. wow uh, but i do feel more alive because of it and that has been a missing piece for me recently and i feel better i mean i don't feel like where i was 2018 summer but mm. right now i feel better than i i have since the illness started and so that's fantastic i'm really really grateful for that oh, i'm man. so glad to hear that 
that's why everything else is like an inconvenience, right? Because it's like, so what? If I feel good, like, you know, we had to postpone a tour. Does that suck? Yeah, kind of. But guess what? We still get to go on the tour eventually. Right. Is there anything you miss right now that like because of the the quarantining that you just don't have access to and, and you'd like to go do maybe? I just miss hanging out with my friends. I really uh, I love Mariah and I'm so glad I have someone to spend this quarantine time with, especially someone that I like. <laughs> I mean, I feel so bad for the couples who who, who get on each other's nerves and, uh, you know, or, or maybe coming out of this with a worse relationship. But Mariah and I, we've been able to really strengthen our relationship. But, you know, as an extrovert, like I just really am craving to be around more people. So mm-hmm. it's interesting. How's your anxiety since we last, we last talked, uh, oh, we, we did so much quarantine better. conversation number two Yeah, and you, you were kind of talking about that. And some of the things you and I talked about after we stopped recording was, I think a lot of it, in fact, I talked to Annika Harris about this as well because mm-hmm. she she knows a lot about this. And um, we, I think her and I had the conversation after uh, it was done recording. I'm not sure. But either way, mm-hmm. she talked about yeah, extroverts really struggling during a period like this. In fact, mm-hmm. I got a text message on our text platform uh, yesterday. You know, people were two, – two great text messages. One um, was uh, uh, someone said they, they put us in their dating profile. <laughs> So it's like if you, if you know who JFM and Ryan Nicodemus are, swipe right, um, which was hilarious. That's great. Um, and I, I just I told her I said I hope you get fewer but better rightward swipes. Yeah. And um, which is I guess ultimately the objective with with anything like that, higher mm. quality. But then also I had a question about extroverts and how do extroverts deal with this 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 quarantine mm. and and this isolation. And the truth is, I, I don't have a good answer to that. Me, I, I think it's awesome. Uh, right. I just spent three weeks with Bex. Right. Uh, we didn't have Ella for three weeks. She was with her biological father, Ryan. And I, I got to tell you, man, um, uh, uh, I, th- that went way better than I ever expected because I've never spent three weeks alone with Bex before. Oh, wow. And we got really good at uh, – I talked to Dan Savage about this, and he gave me a tip. He, he said – get really good at being alone together, meaning not needing to interact with each other as, as introverts. But as extroverts, I, I assume that there's more in, interpersonal interaction when you're together. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Mariah and I are, yeah, we're constantly talking each other's heads off because I mean, she's, she's also an extrovert, but right. I'm, I'm, so we're with her parents right now. So that has helped actually being with two more people uh, who, you know, we just go on random random tangents with. Uh, but yeah, so I've got more people to talk to and interact with being with her parents. I think in LA, one of the reasons why I was feeling the anxiety was because we were coming to Montana and I kept having this wave of guilt happening where it was like, man, if we bring this to Mariah's parents, I'm going to feel so horrible. So because of that, we did, you know, a little bit more of a strict quarantine and I think that is what really caused the anxiety. We're going to head back to L.A. in uh, about five or six days. And uh, I expect to I expect it for it to not be as uh, I, I don't expect to be as anxious as I was before we came out to Montana. But being in Montana has helped a ton. Being with our parents, right. being out in nature, going on hikes. Um, yeah, it's uh, I just I just love Montana. And um, yeah, I was having this beautiful moment where. Uh, this was uh, yesterday morning or maybe the morning before that. I'm like, uh, Lee DeWise, he's been doing these morning um, songs. And I'm sitting right. there, I'm listening to his uh, song on my phone. And there's a skylight in this room uh, in one of Mariah's parents' rooms. And I can see the reflection 
of the skylight in my phone. And there's just like beautiful clouds, man. And, and Lee DeWise is singing his song. And it's funny because at first I'm like, oh, I'm going to screenshot this and capture it. I'm like, but wait a minute, I can't capture the reflection of the clouds. And then, you know, I finally just accepted the fact that like, no, this is a moment that you're going to have to have by yourself and you, you're not going to be able to share it, even though, you know, I think that there's value in sharing specific moments. But yeah, I mean, I just find Montana having so many moments like that where I don't know where I'm just like, I just feel like I'm, you know, in bliss. It's, it's awesome. Yeah, I haven't shared anything that I'm going to see just if I can not share anything to Instagram for the year, just as a, as an experiment, I might fail at that, or I might decide that's a stupid objective. Mm -hmm. Um, but let me, let me ask you this. You're an extrovert. Let's say Mm -hmm. that you weren't with Mariah for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, she had to go somewhere or you just had, you were in an alternate universe where you two were never dating. Mm -hmm. How do you think you would handle this? How how do you think you would try to cope with or even thrive during a time like this, if you were an extrovert that was isolating alone? So one thing that I've been doing now currently is I've been doing a lot of Zoom meetings with friends and I just get a random text where it's like, hey, if you're, you know, if you're not busy, let's have a Zoom meeting in a few minutes. And I've been able to kind of spontaneously talk to a few people that way. So I think I would probably incorporate a lot more uh, meetings like that. But to be honest, I mean, if I was... If I was by my, so right now uh, in Los Angeles, we have a neighbor who he's an amazing dude. It's him and his dog. Um, I would probably make an exception and start hanging out with him more than, uh, than what we're doing now. If I didn't have Mariah, because zoom is an okay substitute, but really the in-person meeting is what is, I would have to find a way to do that. So I would probably, well, in fact, before, um, before things really got crazy, we were hanging out with our neighbor and then our friend Jesse and we called ourselves the quarantine crew because like that is the only people that the four of us hung out with. And we knew that if we could just keep it with us four, everything would be okay. And then as we, when we decided we were going to Montana, we stopped hanging out with them because uh, you know, we were, again, we were trying to be extra safe, but all that to say is I would probably find a few people who I would form a quarantine crew with and uh and have some association with because being by myself i would just i don't know man i i don't i don't think i'd wear pants you know like (laughs) i think i think i would uh i would go crazy pretty pretty quickly if i didn't have someone to hang out with in person so i don't know if that's the best advice at all but i don't know that's that's what that's what i would do are you back i am back did you put some old music on (laughs) <laughs> yeah it's amazing don't worry sean will, sean will edit that out but you were you were talking about where we got cut off um you you were talking about as an extrovert you're having a lot more of these zoom meetings now that could be facetime or skype or, or anything else why are people using i haven't used zoom really during this whole thing do, do you know why people are using zoom as opposed to just say facetime that, that always seems so much easier to me yes on a one-on-one basis facetime probably is easier but to have a group, um, I've never, cause there's Skype, you can do multiple people, uh, Google plus, I don't even know. Do they still do their, <laughs> their video chat? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. um, out of all the Microsoft teams is another one, right. Out of all of the, uh, group meeting platforms I've used, zoom is by far the most simple and intuitive to use. But yes, on a gotcha. one-on-one basis, you're right. FaceTime is probably a little bit easier for sure. Okay. Yeah, yeah that, that makes sense. Now, I, I miss a lot of sort of 
introverted activities. It's funny you, you're talking about this, but like I miss going to the movies by myself. Uh, <laughs> there was something just about that experience. Uh, I miss going to to Squirrel, which is like my favorite restaurant in the world. It's uh, over in like East Hollywood, Silver Lake mm-hmm. area. Uh, they're, they're closed. There are a few other restaurants I miss going to, although mm. I'm saving a ton of money by not eating out. <laughs> I've, I, I just looked at my, my debit card recently in my bank statement and I'm like, Oh my gosh, how much money am I saving? Yeah. Um, yeah. and, uh, I miss going to coffee shops and just reading. I, I, I really liked walking to blue bottle cause it's about a mile and a half from where I live. And then, so I'd get a three mile walk in by going there and back, but then I'd also get some sun and I'd get, mm. Uh, for whatever reason, walking for me, I, I can't do hikes. Like I require a destination. The, <laughs> the only way you'll see me climb a mountain is like if there's a post office at the top of the mountain, so I can go buy a single stamp or something oh. to mail a letter. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I used to be that way too. And because I admired all of the introverted activities that you went and did, like watching movies by yourself and, and doing things by yourself, I started to go out of my way to do that. And I have learned how to just like being with myself walking on a mountain. So I, I, I don't know, man, you, you should get, well, I guess there's no reason for you to really try to incorporate that into your life, but I promise you, if you gave it a shot, you probably would start to like it, man. No, I, I, I the thing is I have given plenty of shots yeah. and I, I just, I can do it. It's fine. I just enjoy having a place to actually go. Mm. I, it doesn't matter to me what the place is. It could be CVS to buy a bottle of lotion. Like it, it, <laughs> It, it, the 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 actual destination. This is a beautiful metaphor. Doesn't doesn't matter. It's just that there happens to be a destination that propels the journey, right? right. Uh, I miss going into the the studio, into the office. I, I prefer to go into somewhere. It puts me in a, a different sort of mindset for working. I don't enjoy working from home as much. Um, I miss going to bookstores, like that. And and I just read this whole article about bookstores and indie bookstores in particular really are going are, are suffering through this mm-hmm. this whole thing, and uh, which is unfortunate because you know we've actually seen since the Great Recession in two thousand eight we've seen a forty nine percent increase in bookstores uh, across the country because oh, a lot wow. of people moved in the cities and all these independent shops have have popped up after Borders went out of business, but they are you know very paycheck to paycheck very low margin. And most of them aren't going to to survive this, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, and I, I don't know, I don't know what that means. But uh, in fact, Sean, if you're listening to this, put a link to that article. I think it was a Slate article. Um, uh, but anyway, put a link to that. I know I shared it with you in in the show notes. But uh, I got a bunch more things I want to talk to you about, Ryan. But I figure we get Paul Saladino yeah. here on the the yeah. call. Let yeah, me sounds great. Invite him really quickly. One sec. Cool. But. Um, what we wanted to talk about with him is Saladino. All right. Um, what we wanted to talk about him with was this uh, this tweet that really spawned this whole conversation that you and I were going to have. Now, Podcast Sean sent out this tweet. Uh, you had a response to it. Mm-hmm. And then my response was, hey, this will make for a fascinating uh quarantine conversation or mm-hmm. or a fascinating maximal episode. And so that's what we're doing right now. And I wanted to bring on some expert. Now, any expert is going to have a sort of biased opinion, right? So we're going to bring Paul Saladino in and he's going to come in with his own sort of biases. And I think you and I can challenge those. We can also challenge each other. And I think it's going to be important to do that. And as soon as he joins, we will, we'll we'll read this this tweet. Well, before he, you know, while we're waiting on him to, oh, you want to read the tweet? Uh, Go ahead. Go ahead and read the tweet. 
No, no, no. I said before, or once he joins, we'll we'll, oh. uh, we'll read the tweet. Okay, so while we're waiting for him, I think there's there's like two camps right now that I see uh, most. One of them is, you know, conspiracy theory. The, the you know the new world order is trying to crash the economy, and that's why we have a stay at home place. And then I see the other side of it where. Uh, you know, people are saying, no, 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 we, we should be doing more. We're not doing enough. You know, the state home, home order isn't enough. And I, I think that you and I both are landing somewhere in the middle. And right. That, and the question is like, how many, how many gradations are in the middle? Right, exactly. And, and that's really why I think it's important to have this conversation is because I think we need to, yeah, we need to, we need to have a, 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 a you know, intelligent conversation, a reasonable conversation, especially with someone like Paul, who we know that he leans, you know, more one way than the other. Um, but hopefully we can help people land in the middle because I think, you know, regardless of what ex- side you're on, if you're on an extreme side, um, I just don't personally, I don't feel that that's healthy. looks like Paul joined us. Welcome to the conversation. Mm-hmm. Ryan and I are chatting about all kinds of things, quarantine, and um, we've been doing these really great quarantine conversations on our on our uh, private podcast, which is what we're on right now. So th- th- this is sort of the most fervent group of the minimalist supporters. And this allows us to sort of put our hair down. And thankfully, neither one of us had, have hair, ha- had haircuts in a while. So we have plenty of hair to put down at this point. <laughs> and um, we, we have a lot more uh, uh, personal and um, nuanced conversations here. But the, the folks here on Patreon in particular, they allow us to go a lot deeper. There's only about 5,000 uh, plus people here. So it's a much smaller group than our, our main podcast. But these people allow some, some room for error. They also allow us to have these sort of discussions in public that we probably um, they let us have these discussions in semi-private public space that we wouldn't have with a broader audience in front of hundreds of thousands or, or millions of people. And so uh, what we're talking about today, what sparked this conversation, Paul, and, and you're a medical doctor, and I've heard your perspective on on the, the whole quarantine, on the coronavirus, and um, we can reiterate some of that here. I'll allow you to do that. But what, what really sparked this conversation was our podcast producer, Sean, podcast Sean, he sent out this uh, series of tweets and that, that Ryan responded to. And I just wanted to get your perspective on this. And then I've got some things that we could probably talk about, try to keep this relatively concise. We're not going to dive too deep into any of it. But what we're trying to help people do is formulate their own opinion. Ryan talks about you know, there are conspiracy theorists on one side uh, talking about the new world order. And then there are people who are who are saying, no, 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 we need to force people to stay in their homes in perpetuity and in glass boxes sort of thing. And everyone else is sort of in the middle and we're trying to find where the best spot in the middle is. And I thought a intelligent conversation would allow us to illuminate that, that middle area, uh, which is, which is really vast. And so this is Sean's tweet here. The first one says this quarantine is looking less like safety and more like an experiment and how much government control citizens will tolerate. His second tweet said, we have not only, we have to not only consider the lives saved today by this blanket containment policy, but also in the unintended consequences we'll suffer in the wake of it. How many more lives will be lost as a result of economic and social destabilization in the aftermath of such a policy? And then his third and final tweet says, 
and it's trickling up. Less taxpayers working and purchasing taxable goods and services equals less taxes collected equals less operating revenue for governments equals dwindling social services. If this blanket containment policy continues, dominoes will continue to fall. And Ryan's response to that was there are about 135,000 people and rising. Uh, this was at the time, April 15th, uh, victims and families and friends uh, that would disagree with you. Extreme circumstances require extreme self-discipline, which unfortunately most people lack. And then I just responded finally with this will be a fascinating, this will be fascinating for our next quarantine conversation. I'm struggling to grasp what government control has to do with self-discipline. Uh, We both want people to be safe and financially free. After speaking with my brother and wife, who both lost their jobs last week, I wonder where the balance is. Now, Paul, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, It sounds to me uh, that Ryan is is thinking Sean is is borderlining on conspiracy theorists. I I don't necessarily think that he is, but I could see how that could be uh, the assumption. And I've heard you talk, and maybe we could start with this, Paul. I've heard you talk about Corona shaming, which is really shutting down conversations. And I think we want to do the opposite of that today. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. I, I do think that there is Corona shaming, there's tribal shaming, there's anything that's contrary to the status quo shaming that happens so hmm. much in our society. And those don't, those don't advance anything. And I'm no stranger to these conversations having been interested in animal-based diets. So, you know, I, I like these type of conversations that challenge the norm and um, obviously I got interested in, in the coronavirus conversation as a medical doctor, as somebody that's interested in human health and what makes us healthy and diseased. And from the beginning, I've been trying to wrap my head around it too. Based on the tweets that I'm hearing, um, I think there are a lot of nuances that I'll try and unpack in a succinct way. I do think that there is some human element to this around discipline that is challenging for people. So I can understand where Ryan is coming from. And I also think that there are a lot of assumptions that we are making with a quarantine and with social distancing that have not been demonstrated to be scientific fact. And by that, I mean, I do not think we can invariably say, though it is widely assumed that quarantine and social distancing is saving lives, we cannot say that. And that may sound like a very controversial radical statement, but it is uh, that is very far from a certainty at this point. And I'll tell you why from at least my medical perspective. Uh, if people have heard me on your podcast in the past, they will know that I'm, I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not an infectious disease doctor. I, I am a physician. I'm a, I'm a classically trained medical doctor. I think about this stuff and I am aware of how viruses work. And I have studied epidemiology in medical school and residency, but I'm, I'm by no means uh, someone that carries credentials that would make me a quote expert but I think that we all of our voices are valuable and we all need to think critically. So when we're thinking about all of this, we have to think, why would a quarantine save lives? What are we trying to do? What is the end goal with what we're doing now? And as much as I've tried to wrestle with this in my mind and grapple with it and think about it, what I come up with is that a quarantine, a lockdown, shelter at home, whatever we want to call it, It saves lives by not overwhelming the healthcare system. Mm, And beyond that, I think it's pretty difficult, if not impossible, to say that it's saving lives. And this is, I think, where the biggest 
misunderstanding comes from in the general populace with regard to viruses, with regard to transmission of respiratory viruses, with regard to transmissibility of infectious disease in general. The, the underlying assumption here seems to be that by staying in our homes, we are decreasing the absolute number of people who will be exposed to coronavirus in perpetuity or eventually, which I think is false. And I think that there are many data points now which suggest that this virus has become much more widely distributed than we believe, despite our efforts. And in fact, we see a lot of similarities across different countries, different locales, different states who have all undertaken different lockdown or lack of lockdown uh, procedures, suggesting that as I've kind of tried to say in my social media and my messaging, this virus is much different than we, than we think. We're not in control of the spread of this virus. You cannot really control the spread of a virus in the way that people are imagining you can. And the virus is not going to go away. It, just doesn't, it doesn't evaporate if we stay in our homes long enough. Theoretically, yes, if you locked every single human in the United States in a shipping container for two weeks, the virus would have nowhere to go. But we would all die and nothing would happen. And it would be a complete, complete collapse of the global, global ecosystem, the global economy. It's not even nearly uh, functional or reasonable to do that. And sure. I see the that, headline now. It says, uh, Dr. Saladino says, kill all Americans to stop coronavirus. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> a, very, a very effective way to, to stop coronavirus would be wiping out the population, right? Putting everyone in a, in a massive prison, putting everyone in a bubble and we all suffocate. And, and there, it's gone. But short of that, you, I think that there are so many interesting data points, and I'm happy to talk about the Diamond Princess or the USS Theodore Roosevelt. Yeah, let's start there, because I thought those, to me, were two new data points that I had never considered before, and they seem like statistically viable experiments that were, I mean, they weren't intentional experiments, but we can, I think, extrapolate something from the data from, from both of those uh, ships. So both of these are large ships that housed thousands of people. Uh, the USS Theodore Roosevelt was a Navy ship that was at sea for many months and had oh, about 5,000 military personnel on it. And there was a very large coronavirus outbreak, SARS-CoV-2 outbreak on Theodore Roosevelt. Diamond Princess, I believe, had 3,500 people. The demographics of those two populations was different, which actually is quite interesting when we look at things, and we'll get to that. But if you look at those ships, you can think of those ships as a mini ecosystem. Hmm. This is an enveloped virus, meaning that it's a it's viral material inside of a, it's RNA inside of a kind of a, a membrane, and the membrane is made of lipids. It's, it has a cell membrane essentially. It's not a cell, but it has like a membrane, like a cell in our body. It's an enveloped virus. Some viruses are not enveloped; they're encased in kind of these capsid proteins. But this is this is enveloped in uh, lipids, uh, essentially hmm. phospholipids. And it, it can last on surfaces for 24 to 48 hours. It can be transmitted by a cough or a sneeze. We don't actually know how, how transmissible the virus is. That's probably one of the key, key, key things that we can talk about is the transmissibility of the virus and how widely it might have already spread. But you can imagine that if you are living in a steel ship and a virus moves through the ship, essentially every single person on that ship is going to be exposed to the virus. It's mm. going to be nearly impossible. You cannot lock a ship down. You just can't. And the virus, before anyone is even symptomatic, the virus has pretty much already spread throughout the entire ship or the majority of it. You have to think every surface is being touched. 
every surface is being coughed on or, you know, like it's, it's just an environment where everyone is in such close quarters that you have to imagine that the Diamond Princess and the USS Theodore Roosevelt, nearly 100% of people on those ships were exposed to coronavirus. Mm. And on both of those ships, only about, I think the numbers were about 20% of the people studied actually tested positive for the, for the virus. So that's just testing positive with a swab. And that brings up a lot of questions about what we... That's not the antibodies test, No, right? it's not the antibodies test. This is an RT-PCR. Because the virus is an RNA virus, we have to do what's called RT-PCR. We have to amplify viral uh, nucleotides. These are ribonucleotides in the, the posterior throat with a swab. And it brings up questions. How sensitive is that test? How many can it miss of the people it tests? But... In terms of that test, which is the, the test that they had at the time, only 20% of the people on the test ship tested positive. Of the 20%- For the infection itself. It doesn't mean that other people didn't have antibodies, but, but no infection, right? Well, yeah, actively replicate. We presume that a positive test on an RT-PCR, again, within the confines of how sensitive is the test, meaning how many false positives and how many false negatives for the test occur. And we can get into that as well. But- if you, the, the presumption, everything being perfect, if you're finding viral RNA in the throat, you have virus replicating and, quote, alive, even though many people would say viruses are not alive, in the back of the throat, meaning there mm. are, they have the virus in their throat, which is where it's going to start and then move to the lungs. And everyone's exposed. 20% of people have the virus in their throat, mm-hmm. according to this test. Of the 20% who have the virus in their throat, only 60, only 40% are symptomatic, meaning that 60% are asymptomatic. Hmm. And then of the 40% who are symptomatic, you can break it down further and say how many were severe and how many died. And this is where the epidemiology, epidemiology becomes interesting regarding how old people are on the two ships. The Diamond Princess is an older age cohort. Of the people who tested positive for the virus, the numbers were essentially the same between both uh, ships. 20% positive of probably everyone getting exposed. asymptomatic, 40% symptomatic. Of the 40% who are symptomatic, or I guess of all the people who were testing positive for it on the Diamond Princess, the case fatality rate was, I think, between 1% and 2%. And you can imagine, this is that's a pretty high case fatality rate, but that's a much older population on a cruise ship. The case fatality rate on the USS Theodore Roosevelt, I believe, was 0.17%. One out of 600 people uh, actually went to the hospital and died. So you can see that in a, a younger population, case fatality rate is much lower. So it speaks to so many different aspects of this. Number one, there's a large percentage of the population probably that is asymptomatic with this infection, right? That's, that's, these are tips of the iceberg. We can see, like, we could try and yeah, look in, under in fact, the wall. Paul, Paul I, I, I saw the stat um, when, from the conversation you had with, um, what's the doctor's name? Kirk Parsley? Yeah, Parsley. Uh, Dr. Parsley, uh, when he was talking about uh, 80 or 50 to 85 times more cases than what we are currently reporting that that's the, the, the that's the the potential right now so if we see that a thousand people in your neighborhood are are infected uh, test wise it could be as many as 50 to 85 thousand people and that number is is suspect right now that came out of a Stanford study 
um, okay. which was done by Johnny Anitas and Jay Bhattacharya. And I was actually just talking with our mutual friend, Tommy Wood. And the, the statistics, the problem with the epidemiology, and this came up in our last conversation about healthy diets. The problem with epidemiology is there are so many nuances and so many things we have to account for with the numbers. And there's what's the false positive rate? What's the false negative rate, right? This makes all the statistics so tricky to really, it gets to be a numbers game. They did publish a paper saying that. And there's another paper from Iceland, which is a very fascinating, it's like a large diamond princess, right? It's like a large little, it's a large uh, country that's smaller than the US or smaller than many of the European countries where we can also study it. That Iceland wasn't quite the same. If you look in Iceland, they found that they were, they were expecting about 80 to, 88 to 91% of people were, were asymptomatic uh, with it. Or they found you know, that the, the detection rate was uh, like one in 10. So they had about 10 times more people that were exposed to the virus than, than were being originally detected. So that's a different mm-hmm. number than the 50 to 85. But we're, it's it's starting to be a big multiplier, right? So we're looking at a much bigger multiplier now for the number of people that have been exposed to the virus. And when we think about how many people are asymptomatic, and then we think about the much bigger number, what about people who get exposed to the virus and don't even test positive? What's going on there? Hmm. What we're suggesting now is perhaps this virus, if this virus is very transmissible, perhaps it's already moved through the majority of the population, perhaps it's already moving through our country, um, at a much greater rate than we've expected it to. And what does that mean for everything? And going back to the original tweets, when we compare places that shut down very quickly with places that did not, many other variables come into play, but we don't necessarily see correlation between death rates or any of these, um, these sort of end measures no, based no, on how we shut and- down. And, and Ryan as well, it seems to me like what we're, what we're, the question we're asking here is what is appropriate? Uh, what's the appropriate sort of government response in, in all of that, in all of this, right? And, and the, the answer isn't full on authoritarianism. We all agree with that. We don't want to, we don't, none of us want martial law. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but we're also, we're, I think we're also saying that we believe that the government has some role somewhere in this. Now, if I brought TK Coleman on here, he would disagree with that. And that's fine. <laughs> he and I had a whole uh, freedom conversation about, about this. The question then becomes, what is, how much of a role should we have? And, and maybe the, the countries to compare there is, do we do what the United States has done, or maybe California in particular, which has some more stringent um, uh, restrictions, or New York City understandably has more more stringent restrictions. Do we do we do what what California and New York has has done, or do we do something more like what Sweden has done? Which uh, maybe Paul, you could talk between you could talk about the the nuances between each, and then Ryan, I'd love to hear what what your thoughts are on on which is a, a better approach. Sure. Yeah. So again, I think that. We all have to um, admit our bias, right, and, and our confirmation bias, and I think that's why conversations like this are so valuable. But when we look at what Sweden has done, as far as I can tell, because Sweden has been a, a very interesting uh, petri dish of sorts, they they took a strategy that was not completely laissez-faire. They they sheltered the old as much as they could, and a lot of the population. It, lives in nursing homes. So I think a very large proportion of the population that's elderly in Sweden lives in nursing homes, which is interesting because then you have a lot of elderly people who we know are 
very susceptible to the virus, all living in close quarters, right? So that's an interesting thing about Sweden. But Sweden yeah. did not necessarily shut down businesses. They did ask for some degree of social distancing and prudence in public, if I understand it properly. And there was perhaps some uh, public discussion of uh, hand washing and perhaps mask wearing occasionally. But the, vi- the, the video I saw, the videos I've seen suggest that they didn't do much there. It was mostly just a shelter, the old, allow the young to do what they need to do and talk about this, the H word, the herd immunity. Can we develop herd immunity versus what happened in New York? And again, New York may be a very specific, unique inoculum. And um, you forwarded me some tweets before this, this podcast, uh, Joshua, which also suggested that this is a very heterogeneous type of issue and that, that perhaps strategies that are um, the same across, across state borders and across local borders don't make a whole lot of sense. If you have a very, a very big contagion or a very serious inoculum like New York City, but not necessarily in other places, but like New York and now California has basically shut down all the beaches and everywhere and you can't go anywhere and you're, there's a lot of corona shaming going on if you're not wearing a mask or if you're doing anything or standing too close to anyone else. So for me, it kind of gets back to the, the question, which is the original question you were asking was what is appropriate and my perspective is that it was very difficult for us to know what was appropriate. And I think that the models we were using constantly got readjusted and were very wrong in the beginning. And I can't help but think that there was some media hype, uh, especially because the, the, the most clearly severe place was New York City, where all of these media outlets are based. I know LA has yeah, a yeah, lot. Yeah. But, but Paul, also, the, the real reason for any media hype, and Ryan and I talk about this quite a bit, is they want to aggregate eyeballs onto their exactly. service. Exactly. And, and the, the, the whole business model, and it's the problem with it. It's why I hate advertising so much. It's the reason that I'm so grateful for our Patreon audience. We don't do any advertising whatsoever because we're allergic to it. And, and the reason I'm allergic to it is it shapes... It, it shapes what you're trying to do. And, and whether it's CNN or any of these other places, I'm not calling out any one media outlet in particular. Uh, some are obviously better than others. I'd rather you watch CNN than, than say, you know, Breitbart or something. But um, uh, Or there, take whatever is far left as well. It's the same thing. Um, and, and so I, I would look at, at a place like CNN and say, well, their main objective here is to get more people on to their service. Well, how do you do that? Well, you terrify people. It's what I call fear porn. And, <laughs> and because it's addictive like porn, sure. right? In fact, I mm-hmm. found myself, um, uh, I found myself attending to the news much more frequently during this quarantine because I, th- there's this almost like this dopamine rush of, of I have to be informed. I'm not getting anything out of it. It's not truly adding any value to my life. It's not changing my behaviors in any meaningful way. It's simply what scaring me, causing a fight or flight response, maybe weakening my immune system. One person, I, I don't know, but it's not. It's not doing anything that's that's really that helpful. And so, so Paul, I, I guess what I would like to ask here, and maybe this is a question that I, I need Ryan to answer too, is. At what point do we do a shutdown like we're doing right now? What is acceptable? Because when, when I hear someone like Andrew Cuomo saying, I would shut down the state for 12 months, or, or I think he said 18 months, to save one life, and it's like, well, that's 
that's not just dumb, but you should get out of politics if, if you're saying that. That's because people are going to die. That's the only thing that we can we can guarantee in this life is that we are going to die. And we know that we don't shut down the country for 80,000 deaths because in 2018, the flu, we don't shut down everything. So, so what is the number? Is it is it 120,000? Is it 500,000? Like, at what point do we decide we need to shut things down? And I think mm-hmm. that's what we need to figure out at this point. Well, maybe I can just make a comment and then I'll, I'll let Ryan weigh in because I know I want to hear his opinion too. Is that okay, Ryan? Yeah, it's totally cool. Okay. So I, again, this kind of loops back to the assumption that I was talking about in the beginning that I want to make sure that I fully unpack. Are we believing that a shutdown will save lives independent of healthcare overwhelm? Because I don't believe it does. Because, and I think that, that it's a tool that's being wielded incorrectly. Where we have a hammer in our hand and we're trying to use it to screw in a nail, to screw in a screw, right? Like that's not how you do it. Why do we we don't actually know what the quarantine does? There are lots of articles being written about this. The quarantine, to say that a quarantine saves lives, saves lives independent of healthcare overwhelm, and I, I can unpack that assumes that somehow we are limiting the absolute number of people who will be exposed to the virus over time. And if you look at the models, again, it's just the sort of canonical model of flattening the curve, quote unquote, the area under both of the curves, people may be familiar with this this graphic, it has a steep curve, kind of a bell curve that's very steep, and then a bell curve that's much more flat. And if you do the integral of both of those curves, if you break out your high school calculus or your college calculus and you do the integrals, the area under both of those curves is the same. And the area under both of those curves is the number of people who get exposed to coronavirus, right? Or right. And thus the that. same number of people will die exactly. as long as the healthcare system isn't overwhelmed. Independent of a magical new therapy that gets developed while you are extending the curve. So as, as much as I've been wrestling with this, the point of flattening the curve is to develop a vaccine, and that has all sorts of other issues associated with it. But let's just assume a vaccine is completely safe and completely effective right? Both of which are pretty serious assumptions um, because we know that vaccine. Yeah, I wouldn't assume that. Let's let's pause on that for a second because again, this is our Patreon audience. We're allowed to have these conversations. I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I just want to put that out there. Although let let me just say this. I know nine medical doctors, including yourself. um, And I I did the math on this the other day. Uh, So I, I know nine medical doctors I could text right now and ask them this question. And I probably should. But my guess is if a vaccine came out tomorrow for this, of those very smart medical doctors, I know two of those nine would definitely take it. One, I suspect, might, and I think the other six wouldn't. Hmm. And, and well, why is that? Is that because they are anti-vaxxers? No. I, I, in fact, if the vaccine came out tomorrow, I can't say that I would take it. I, I'm, I, I would... I'm an I'm a vaccine questioner, and what I mean by that is my daughter is vaccinated, and but before I put anything in her body, isn't it the responsible thing to do to question what I'm putting in her body? Mm-hmm. Because yes, I know a doctor might, uh, 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 some medical doctors might say yes, we 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 can do this, but who cares and loves about my uh, cares about my daughter and loves her more than than me and, and her mother, and shouldn't we be the ones that are questioning what is going into her body, and um. I worry about about a a vaccine. In fact, if you look, there's this. Uh, what was the vaccination from 1976? Um, today we call people who who are questioning vaccines anti-vaxxers, and that's really unfortunate. Again, I'm 
vaccinated, was vaccinated. My, my, my daughter's vaccinated. You can't call me an anti-vaxxer, but, um, I'm, I'm highly skeptical uh, by the people who in 76 were, were, were given the swine flu vaccines and all of the problems that came about from that. Mm. And, and, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm cautious about any sort of, uh, solution that could potentially make things worse for some people. Yeah. I totally yeah. agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, I think, well, I think when it comes to, to vaccines, we have this problem of leaning one way or the other. Either we're pro-vaccines or we're anti-vax. But I think, Josh, what you're talking about is this middle ground where if you if you are uh, you know responsible for, for your child getting a vaccine or responsible for yourself, it's about making an informed decision. Because mm-hmm. you know I can sit here and say, like, yeah, if, if Mariah and I have a kid, they're probably going to get the polio vaccine. Am I going to give them you know, all the other 27 vaccines that are, you know, that a child's supposed to have, I would have to really do some research on that because certainly vaccines aren't, they're not 100% good, but they're also not 100% bad. And I think, yeah, I think that's where, where the the trouble lies is, is that it's hard to find this, this middle ground. Um, I agree completely. And it has to be okay to question it. It can't, yeah. I, that's what I hate about the anti-vaxxer moniker and this corona shaming and being called a climate denier. And I, t- I talked about this in one of my other posts on Twitter or something. It's like by questioning the status quo in any way, you just get this moniker. You get labeled mm-hmm. as a flat earther, quote unquote. You know, And all yeah. of these things are you're labeled as a troglodyte. You're labeled as a Neanderthal. Like how can you possibly question something that we know is good? So many of these issues are so much more nuanced. Than any of this, I mean, maybe flat earth thing is not so nuanced. Maybe, but, the, you get, <laughs> but, no, but even there, you know, even even there, e- even something as absurd as flat earth is worth the question. Exactly. Like, and if you ask the question, and you can answer that question, you can prove that one's really easy to to, to disprove. Exactly. And so you can do that with a lot of things, but with the vaccine, for example, it's so nuanced. The flat earth thing is not nuanced. That is binary. It is either flat or it is round. And, and there's this giant conspiracy, round earth conspiracy. Of course, that's, that's not true. Um, I think what it gets down to, and, and this is where, where Ryan and I are, are closely aligned is we want to invo- avoid the the conspiracies, because I don't think it has to be that nefarious. I don't think it has to be new world order. Government wants to microchip your brain and all these other things. No, I think power begets power. And you see someone like Mike DeWine, who is the Republican governor of Ohio. He uh, seizes this opportunity to prop to possibly do good. And his intentions may be good, but of course the road to hell is paved with, with good intentions. And, and, and so by becoming the authoritarian and telling everyone what they need to do, it actually removes the thing that Ryan was advocating for in the first place. Ryan was advocating for self-discipline. But if the government's telling you what to do, that's the opposite of self-discipline. Right. I mean, that's that's why I even responded to, to Sean's tweet was because I felt like it was a borderline conspiracy theory saying that, oh, this is actually the government trying to test how much control they can have over the population, which, yeah, I agree, power begets more power, but I don't think that every single uh, government in, in, you know, within every single country is doing this test and they're all conspiring to see how much can we actually control the population. I think it's more what uh, Paul was saying that we've taken this hammer to try to put in a screw, meaning that, Mm. or or another, uh, what uh, Harding called it was an atom bomb to an ant. And I totally, Mm. I totally agree to that extent, 
But in the same token, it's like when people can't have self-discipline, when people don't take it seriously and, you know, they're still going to the beach for spring break and they're like, I don't care. I'm young. I'm going to live. But it's like, yeah, you're going to pass it on to someone who to who, uh, you know, eventually might die from it. And there's but Ryan, if if what Paul is saying is Mm -hmm. that that ultimately that doesn't matter if 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 we're all going to be have the same level of exposure over the course of a year instead of a of a month or whatever mm-hmm. um that that's going to happen regardless then right that's well, exactly my point that and i didn't mean to interrupt you but that no. that that person might will probably be exposed to it anyway mm-hmm. and and this speaks to something else that i was talking about with kirk parsley which is at any one time and this, this gets to be not politically correct, but I love that we're in the private forum and we can talk about this because this needs to be talked about. At any one time in any group of animals on the savanna or anywhere else in the world, there are animals that are more robust and there are animals that are less robust. There are animals that are stronger and faster and animals that are slower and weaker. And when the lion ends up on the same savanna as the wildebeest, the slowest wildebeest is probably going to end its circle of life with death. Yeah. And at any one time, there are going to be people who are more susceptible to all of the chronic diseases that that usher us into the beyond, whether that's cardiovascular disease, whether that's cancer, whether that's a respiratory illness like coronavirus or the flu. Or 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 the biggest killer in our country, which is poverty, by the way. Right. And we, we can go over the stats on that. We'll actually talk about that in a moment. But Ryan, I wanted to, to, to hear from you on that because... Um, I don't. I don't know if you have a, a different perspective on that after well, after thinking about the well, the yeah, I, thing. I think okay. So, um, Paul, you talked about Sweden earlier. So, Sweden right now, as it stands, they have twenty two hundred deaths. And uh, if you look at uh, Norway, for example, which has which has half the population of of Sweden, they've got about two hundred deaths. So, is every single person in Norway and Sweden eventually going to get the coronavirus? Maybe. But if we look at those numbers, and, and, I'm, and this is a question that I'm asking you, Paul, uh, wouldn't those numbers indicate that Sweden, who has virtually no stay-at-home order versus, versus Norway, who does, wouldn't those numbers indicate that the quarantine, in fact, does save lives? The story's not over yet, unfortunately. I, I, totally, I totally agree, but there's, there is a slowdown happening in Norway versus Sweden. And I, I guess- the quarantine right. is doing something. Perhaps, perhaps. Positive. Again, it's, it's nuanced. Mm-hmm. The, the thing is, what are the other differences between Sweden and Norway? What is the mm-hmm. percentage of the elderly people who live in um, care homes in Sweden mm-hmm. versus Norway? So if you look at Sweden, they, at the time on April 26th, the numbers were 80 deaths per million 21 days after crossing the one per million threshold, which is just sort of this calculation that people have been doing, looking at deaths per capita, right? Um, mm-hmm. So it's it, if you look at Sweden's death rate, it's lower than that of the seven hardest hit states in the U.S., Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Louisiana, Connecticut, Michigan, mm-hmm. New York, New Jersey. So Sweden is lower than all those states, all of which, except Louisiana, shut down in three days or less. And despite high death rates in Sweden, what they're saying, it's the middle of the pack in Europe. It's comparable to France, better than Italy, Spain, and the UK, and it's worse than Finland, Denmark, and Norway. So if, if Sweden were going to be this absolute catastrophe, this burning building, it's, it's somewhere in the middle, and it's better than seven states, the majority of which shut down in three days. Like, there's something really nuanced going on here, 
And this mm. is where Norway is so, or just where epidemiology is so tricky. Like, okay, mm. what, how are they counting? Who's dying? How, what is the epidemiology of the people in those places? And then the question is, is it slowing the spread? Possibly, right? Um, yeah. It's possible it's slowing the spread, but eventually, could it be killing more people? Like, this is the question. If you're not overwhelming mm. the healthcare system, and everyone in Norway is going to get exposed because coronavirus doesn't just disappear. It's going to stay in the population. There could be a peak in the, in the fall as well. And I think that the story won't be written until probably a year from now. Yeah. And until we can look at a whole season. And this was so interesting about what you sent me, Joshua, and I hope I'm not jumping the gun. If we look at death rates right now, we could say the death rates are higher in some places, but will they be lower later? Because Yeah, just, just to be clear, I, I, I sent... Uh, uh, I sent Paul this this tweet thread um, that just said, hey, this thread seems to jettison many of the arguments in, uh, from your most recent podcast. I'm uh, interested in your thoughts. And basically, the the tweet thread is from a guy named John Byrne Murdoch. And he said a lot of data reported COVID death is highly suspect. So we've been looking into excess mortality. How many more people than usual have been dying around the world in recent weeks? Question mark. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, maybe, Paul, maybe maybe you can talk to that because the th- this does seem to suggest that the what Ryan is saying is that quarantining is is working. Now, my well, it, question then then becomes is does it mean that okay if we're going to have a hundred thousand deaths in Ohio and it happens over the course of two months or one year, is that effectively the same thing? And, and, or do we shut down the entire economy for uh, two months, which will lead to endless poverty and so forth? Um, which by the way, let me just, let me, let me be clear about this. I'm sorry about the, the, the digression here, but I'm, I'm less concerned about the economy. I, I could give a shit about the economy. Um, I am concerned about individual households and their financial situations. Mm-hmm. The I, I don't care if the, the, yes, it hurts me if the S&P 500 goes down or whatever, but it hurts people much more, like my brother who was laid off from his factory job because the whole factory closed. It hurts people so much more when when I, I look at um, the, the Dayton area, Ryan and I are from Dayton, Ohio, and these da- Dayton area layoffs, and this is an article from April 18th, so it's it's uh, even a couple weeks ago, mm-hmm. but this is from the uh, Dayton Business Journal, and uh, GE Aviation has laid off 1,500 people there. The Sugar Creek Packing Company has laid off 129 workers. Hitachi is uh, furloughed 115. Advanced Composites has getting has gotten rid of 210 employees. Greenville Technology 535. I don't even know if there's 500 people in Greenville. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Gissing North America has laid off 120 people. Ross Casting has laid off 167. RV Refrigerator Manufacturer Norcold has laid off 100 or 224. Navistar has, has laid off. Uh, Everyone at their Springfield plant, mm-hmm. Thor Industries, a thousand local employees. Green to Tokai yeah. has unemployment has five hundred. Is at an all-time high right now? I mean, what what is sure. it like at the beginning of April? There are four million people. Yes, there, it's very clear I that there are a lot of layoffs. No, 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 no. We're we're approaching thirty million right yeah. now. It's it's yeah. uh, it's twenty six currently. I'm by sorry. The time this podcast. Comes what I'm out, saying is, million. four million additional people. I think at the beginning of April. But regardless, it's it's no, a lot. no, no. Yeah, well, no. I'm saying right now at the end of April, mm. we're we're approaching thirty yeah, million. It's, it's unbelievable. People who have filed for unemployment. It's unbelievable. And, I, and I've heard a statistic. 
uh, I believe, uh, sourced from Bloomberg, that for every 1% of unemployment, every 1% of unemployment costs 40,000 lives over the ensuing six years. So if you do the math on that, we're looking at, you know, over a million deaths in the next six years related to what's happening now. And yeah. sure. So I've got a, I've got a study here from from 2011. Um, so in 20 in 2011, there were 874 U.S. deaths as a result of poverty. Now, 133,000 of those are direct directly related. The others are indirectly related. I guess you could call poverty the the, the most rampant comorbidity that, that's out there. And, and, and because it is, it is such a factor in, in our, in all these other things, it, it becomes this cascade of, of, of other factors. And when we're, as we're approaching 30 million people who have lost their jobs just in the last month or so, that's, that's what I'm worried about. Mm-hmm. We, we've shut down to stop the spread of something that is not going to stop spreading regardless. It, mm-hmm. And, and my, my question is, is that the best approach? And I honestly, I, I don't know the, the answer to that. I, like I said at the beginning, Paul, before you joined, actually, Ryan and I were talking about this. I don't have much of a dog in this fight. I, I'm immunosuppressed because of the, the uh, medications I'm on right now, the Pintasa. And and so, like, for me, like, I, I'm going to self-quarantine regardless of what the government tells me mm-hmm. to do. I'm going to avoid public places because it makes the most sense for me right now. Uh, the question is, do we force everyone to leave their jobs uh, in the meantime? Well, you know, it's interesting, Josh. If everyone had your attitude and that responsibility, I don't think there would have to be this this atom bomb taken to an ant. And I think that that's really where we're at. Uh, one thing too, Paul, um, the, the, in, the so the numbers that we're talking about with like Norway and Sweden, for example, there are numbers that are here and now. And, and personally, that's what I tend to look at is, is, what, is what is happening right now. And a lot of the numbers that I hear you talking about, this isn't an accusation, Paul. I'm just, you know, really asking the question. I, I see you and, and maybe you too a little bit, Josh, where we're looking at the what ifs. We're looking at the the numbers that may be. The story hasn't been uh, told yet and there's still a lot more to go. So there seems to be a lot of speculation of where this is going to go versus like what's happening here and now. And I guess... Um, I, I don't know if what I'm looking at is right. I don't know if the data that Paul is talking about is right, but I guess, you know, help me understand why we would, um, look at, you know, something that hasn't happened yet versus what's actually happened right now. Like with Norway and Sweden, those are, those are hard numbers. Those are numbers that hundred percent are there. Um, and by the way, I was just looking up the the elderly age, for example, there's 15% of, uh, 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 in Sweden, you've got 15%. I'm sorry, 20%, 65 and over. In Norway, you've got 15, 15%, 65 and over. I don't know if that 5% makes a huge difference. Where are but, they? Are they, in, are they in nursing homes? Um, that that, I, that I, I didn't have a chance to dig into. I just kind of looked up what percentage was 65 and over. Right. But, but, but I mean, I don't know. Does the 5% make up for you know, the additional uh, 2,000 people that have, that have died in Sweden? Like, yeah, Certainly you know, could I, when you have... 80% of people dying from coronavirus over the age of 65. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, let's, let me, let me, let me just say this real quick. So I think it depends on what comparison we're making, right? Cause right now you, you, we are, Ryan, you're comparing Sweden to, to say Norway. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we compare Sweden to New York, for example, New York is, has been on strict lockdown right. and is 
far, far, far worse. And not just New York. We, let's, complain, let's compare Sweden to Detroit, for example, or Michigan as, as a state in general. And so in Sweden, there are 20 – I'm looking at the CDC data right, right now. Uh, this is from the New York Times interactive map. And um, the, if I look at Sweden, there's 22 deaths for every 100,000 people. If I go to the U.S. map right here mm-hmm. and I look at Michigan, for example – uh, so in the U.S. in total, it's 15 deaths per 100,000, but that includes South Dakota, that includes um, Arkansas, it includes you know sure. all, all these places that have have fewer deaths. Mm-hmm. But if I'm looking at Michigan, as soon as it pops up here, the oh wait, this is just Wayne County. Uh, so Wayne County, yeah, that's I believe that's Detroit. Oh my God, uh, it's. 89 deaths per 100,000 people. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's orders of magnitude higher than Sweden. And they've been on lockdown for a, a really long time. And so the question becomes, why is it so different in, in these different areas? And Paul, maybe, maybe you can talk to that because it might mean that we need to take different strategies based on the geography, right? Well, I mean, I would also posit too, Paul, before you answer that in Michigan, the people in Michigan are rioting what are they, I'm sorry they're not rioting they are protesting they are uh-huh. they are uh, there's a very much there's a very different attitude where with Sweden they uh, maybe they're taking it a little bit more uh, a little bit more of a responsible approach so you've got two completely different cultures and how they're reacting to this and and that that certainly plays a okay, factor let's, in let's it too not do, let's not do Michigan then Let, let's do let's do where where aren't they rioting Let, let's look at um, Massachusetts look at for example Massachusetts yeah. is, is a great example because you think of liberal East Coast um, and there's yeah, but they're also right next to New York City and a lot of people fled New York City to go to Massachusetts. I mean, they're what six hours away. I mean, it, it's a it's an appreciable or yeah. four hours it's an appreciable difference. Yeah, um, but it seems right. like all the states around New York are a little bit heavily weighted because people were fleeing New York City and going back to those states surrounding New York. And they were spreading it there. I mean, yeah, I mean, but we can look at Massachusetts. I'm just, I guess really what I'm trying to say is that there is so much speculation. And this is why I tend to go with what are the numbers now? Because when we start to speculate, you can always lean one or two ways. I mean, I've seen where, you know, there's a lot of, uh, I've seen reports where there's a lot of uh, positive tests, uh, false positive tests. So, so then, you know, we could have a whole conversation about how that is affecting the numbers. So for me, it's really, it's really hard to speculate what's going to be six months from now. What's, what's, you know, let's compare this place versus that place when there's so many different, there's so many like Paul and we all have said, there's a lot of nuance, but what I can look at are these reports and what the total cases are versus what the total deaths are. And those are things that we have solid. Everything else to me seems like it's, it's kind of speculation. And, and that's, I think, exactly what Joshua is doing, um, Ryan. And if you expand the lens, unless you are comparing Sweden to Norway, it, it breaks it breaks apart. It breaks down. Like we're saying, you right. really cannot make uh, an airtight case that that shutdown behaviors are mm. changing the death rate. If you look across right. those well, seven states, if you look across mm-hmm. other countries. It just you really cannot make that case, and, and yeah. if you look at other places, it's it's very heterogeneous, and it probably has to do with other factors. Um, and I think that it's like I said, the, what we know about viruses is that these are not going away. And and right. you know, I think if we go back to what you said in the beginning, 
there, I think now there are, you know, there are an even greater number of deaths in the United States. I can look up the world meter, you know, total coronavirus deaths, but you know, you've said, right now. There are, I'm sorry, 50,000. It just ticked up this morning. 50,000 in the U.S. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, you, you could say, you said in your tweet, you know, I think you said 135,000 people perhaps across the globe who would disagree with you. But mm-hmm. uh, when I hear that, I think, but doesn't that make an assumption that all those people, you know, would not have died from coronavirus otherwise? Or, you know, we can't say that... Um, okay. They would. We can't say that those people would not have died from other things, or you know. Well, we're all gonna on a long enough timeline. We're all dead. Exactly, I mean, and that's for sure. Know, but but I understand what you're saying. We save lives. I think that the so, most insidious narrative that I'm hearing now, not from you guys, but from um, political factions, is that that the numbers were two million deaths, and in the U.S., you know, we could see two million deaths in the U.S., and now we're going to be six. That was the assumption, Paul. Just to clarify, that was the assumption, and that's the reason that that we've shut down is because uh, I think we're all agreeing at this point that it makes sense to, to take these drastic measures if 2 million people are going to die. So I I guess what we're, what we're saying here is we've, we've all agreed uh, to, to some extent uh, other than certain agoraphobes, but other than the agoraphobes, we've all agreed that 80,000 influenza deaths is an acceptable number to not shut down businesses. So 80,000 deaths are okay. Uh, two million deaths are not okay. And then the question is like what, and I know that sounds really crass. And, and by the way, it is, it is a bit crass, but we're, we're talking about numbers right now. And, and at some point there are all these other factors that are, that are leading to additional deaths, additional poverty, additional human suffering that, that has nothing to do with the coronavirus. And even so, in retrospect, and even in retrospect, we can, we can certainly not say that we have saved 1.9 million lives, you know, 1.98 million lives. One point, we cannot say that we've saved, you know, that, 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 that's just, that's a farce to say right. that. And I know you guys, neither of you is suggesting that, but that is not what has happened here because that is again, going back to this idea that you've somehow slowed the spread of the virus indefinitely, or you've decreased the total amount of virus in the, in the ether or in the world, or, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think that, what we're seeing is, yes, there are people dying from this. And every time you say coronavirus and the flu in the same sentence, some people get all you know worked up for one reason. And other people say, that's crazy. This is not looking like the flu. And it looks like the flu in some ways and not like the flu in other waves. To me, it, it's, like, it's like a season's worth of flu deaths smushed into a few weeks. And so I think when it's over and done with, there's a possibility. But to your point, when it's over and done with, I think there's a possibility that we will see something on the order of a bad flu season and that will be compressed into a smaller amount of time, probably because the R not the transmissibility of this virus is higher. And if it's more transmissible, you're going to get essentially the same amount of deaths. If the case fatality rate is the same, which it's trending towards something on the same order of magnitude, you're just going to compress them. And if it's that contagious, then we get back to the original thing, which is do this, does the social distancing make any difference at all, it, I, you know, probably not in my opinion. And we're, we're kind of stuck in this bugaboo all over again. Like, can we say that we saved lives with any of these measures? We really cannot. So whether we're going forward or we're going backwards, it's all speculative. Your point is well taken, Ryan, that we have to speculate, but we we're, we're at a point in time. And even if we look retrospectively and try and say that social distancing is positive, that's a speculation too. 
right? So we, we have to be able to make these models and say, this is what respiratory viruses do, at least from my opinion, mm-hmm. you know, based on what I know, you know, we have to be able to speculate and we have to be able to project based on what we know about respiratory viruses. And this is a novel respiratory virus, but in order to move forward in the best way, we have to do that. If we just react on what we're looking at in this moment, we're never going to be able to correct. We have to at least mm-hmm. look a couple of weeks ahead and say, I think this is what the behavior is going to do. That's what we've been doing all along. And even retrospectively, we can't, we can't say what we've been doing. So it's, the whole thing is fraught. We have to model it somehow. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, if I may talk about the flu versus coronavirus real quick. So I'm looking at the CDC and in uh, 2019, 2020, these are the high estimates, uh, 56 million different flu illnesses. uh, And then there was 62,000 deaths. That's about 0.1% of a death rate. If I'm looking at the worldometer for, and I'm sorry, and that's just for the US. Uh, If I'm looking at the worldometer, you've got about 993,000 cases. You've got about 56,000 deaths. Uh, and and maybe the New York Times hasn't updated. I don't know, Josh, because I know you said 50,000 earlier. But that is a it's a 5.6% uh, death rate. Am I looking at that wrong? You are. Okay. You so are. yeah, so, and, and help yeah. me understand. That's why we, that's why I wanted to have this conversation too, because I want I want to I want to understand why I'm looking at that wrong. Because I would think you take, the number of, you take the number of deaths divided by the total cases and you'd come up with a percentage. But you're yeah, help me help me see differently. Yeah, I think it's I think I think and correct me if I'm wrong here, Paul, but I think it's a denominator problem. Like we understand what the numerator is, but we don't understand what the denominator is. Exactly. And so when you're looking at the CDC and they are saying 35 million to 56 million, Mm -hmm. that's not 35 million to 56 million confirmed cases of the flu. That's Mm. that's extrapolations based on what they know about the numbers and how many people are tested and how much how many people are asymptomatic. So they're doing a calculation which is why that number is 20 million of a fluctuation, right? It's 35. Now, Paul, that's because no one actually gets tested for the flu. I, I was recently because I did a, a, a COVID test and I, I came back positive for rhinovirus. So I had, I had a flu uh, last month. And, and so, but very rarely, like I've never prior to that, I don't think I've ever been tested for the flu. And so many of us get the flu. We're, we would very few of us get tested, you're saying. Right. right. Well, a rhinovirus is technically not an influenza virus. Uh, a rhinovirus is another type of virus that causes a common cold, but the uh-huh. flu is influenza and that's a different type of virus. So there's, there's all the different types of viruses that circulate, right? And the other thing for people to realize, the germaphobes out there will lose their mind when they hear this, is that we are full of, you know, millions, trillions of viruses in our body. The human body is not as, you know, as, as sterile as we would like to think it is from whatever perspective we take. So there are there are always, there's always foreign DNA and RNA and genetic material within us and, uh, in, in, in many cases. But yeah, so when you're looking at those numbers, Ryan, that 35 to 56 million is a calculation. They've, okay. If you look at the number of people who were tested for the flu, I believe from 2019, I saw these numbers and um, you'd have to uh, substantiate them. I, the number of people who were tested for the flu was who tested positive for the flu was around 220,000 people, mm. right? Okay. And the number, of, the number of confirmed flu deaths was 20,000, right? Okay. So if you do those numbers, you're looking at a 10% case fatality rate for the flu. But what we okay. know is that they're saying, well, we, pre- we extrapolate that about 60,000 people died from the flu, and we extrapolate based on all the numbers that 35 to 56 million people 
actually got exposed or had had cases of the flu. But you see how much of a fudge factor there is with all this. Yeah. And this goes back to our previous conversation about asymptomatic rates, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's a 50 to 85x multiplier, or whether it's a 10x multiplier, whether it's a 5x multiplier, right? You have to take that number of cases. And this is the denominator that Josh was talking about. The number of cases you're seeing on Worldometer are confirmed cases. And again, we get to this, this murkiness, like, well, what is the sensitivity of that test, right? What is the specificity? How many false positives? How many false negatives? So this is why we get back to this kind of crazy thing where we're saying, wow, we just don't really know. And it's, it's a lot of speculation, no matter which direction we go with this. Like, mm-hmm. we're doing the best we can. We know that people are dying of coronavirus, and we're trying to, we're like walking around a room in the dark in, in some ways. Yeah. You know, now I've heard a lot of people bring up the, this, this car analogy, and I think it works well because we all agree that, again, except for the most staunch libertarians, uh, we all agree that we want some sort of speed limit on the road, right? We also agree we want fewer car deaths, but, but we're also agreeing there's an acceptable amount of car deaths. And right now we've agreed it's somewhere between 30 and 50,000, 30, 50, thousand people a year in the United States dying in car accidents. Now, there are ways to mitigate that through additional safety standards, but you can add all the safety to a car and nerf your entire life and make a car cost a million dollars worth of safety features. That would reduce deaths. We've decided that it's not worth that cost. And, and we've also decided that it's not worth us driving only 10 miles an hour. If you were to reduce all speed limits across the entire country to 10 miles an hour, you would have a fatality rate that is very close to zero uh, for driving. But we're not willing to accept that. What we are willing to accept right now is there are going to be uh, there's going to be a, a number of predictable deaths every year for cars. It doesn't make me a monster for going on the highway and, and driving the 80 mile speed limit in Montana or the 65 in, in California or whatever it is, it just means that I've, I've accepted this, this sort of pact. And I think the question then becomes, Ryan, is what is the pact that we need to make as a society with government's intervention to say that there is, unfortunately, some people are going to die. What is the acceptable number of deaths so that other people can, can have lives with less suffering? They can, they can, they're not going to get back to normal. We've already talked about that, but they can return to some sort of normalcy. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, if I had an answer for that, I'd, I'd run for, you know, <laughs> for a political position. Mayor of Oakwood. Right. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I don't know, man. I mean, I, I, I think we all agree on this is that whoever's going to get coronavirus is going to get it eventually. And I think the question is, is that, is the quarantine slowing the spread down? And, you know, I, I be, even after having this without, long conversation, without, I think the answer is yes to that. Okay. And, and then Paul would say no, right? Am I right about that, Paul? I would say that it's, it's difficult to say that with certainty at this point. If we look across the numbers, yeah. there is a possibility. Ah, no, 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 Paul. I mean, come on, man. I've been in my house for, for 40 days, man. It's true. I'm not going to get the coronavirus in my house. It's, 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 it's I, there's at least one fewer person who's not going to have the coronavirus because I haven't been out. It's true. And does anyone in your house go outside? Yeah, sure. But, but under, uh, with a lot of precautions and N95 masks and gloves and hand washing, et cetera. And, and so, um, and how many, can I just pause you there? How many people do you think who are doing the quarantine are being as disciplined as you? Very few. Okay. So that's my point that mm. it, is it slowing it 
to an appreciable amount, that's no, probably not. Theoretically, yes, it's yes, it, yeah, it it's probably slowing it, right? But you know, I see people in my building, my apartment complex in California, and <clears throat> I'm silently, not so silently, judging them as they're walking in with McDonald's, and I'm thinking like that's the real problem, you know. But anyway, <laughs> like you know, there's people, there's people like there, you know, if you're going, if you really want to do a quarantine then everyone needs to be as disciplined as Joshua's family mm-hmm. is being, you know, masks, mm-hmm. gloves, et cetera. And, and actually they have to have an N95, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, you can't just have a surgical mask because or then a bandana. You or a bandana, which does essentially nothing, you know, because with a surgical mask, you could certainly inhale coronavirus through the side or the top, right? Mm-hmm. So if you have an N95, it's properly fit and you walk into a grocery store with gloves or you wash your hands and then you take your shoes off when you walk into the house and you sterilize your packages, yes, you can avoid you can avoid this. But I think that that is probably, again, these are just off-the-cuff numbers, less than 1% of people right now. They're, you, see, you see it. You, know, you go to the grocery store, and it's bandanas. And, and you know, it's just like, well, look, this is, this is human behavior. So slowly. Yeah, and that's, yeah. it's interesting because we're getting back to this. We're, we're getting back to the guesstimates of – I feel like, you know, and I'm not saying I do feel this way, but I could say, oh, well, I feel like actually a lot of people are taking this very seriously. And then we've got, you know, two different positions that we really can't have a conversation because neither of us can prove one way or the other how many people are actually taking it seriously. So that's why that's that's a really good point. That's why I keep going back to, you know, what does the worldometer say? What, you know, what, what are the numbers here and now? And, but to your point, Paul, if we just act for the here and now, you're right. Like that's going to be a problem on its own. Um, where is the balance? That's, that's where I'm hoping that we can land with this conversation. I don't know. I don't know if I've really found, you know, exactly where I stand. I will, I will say one thing and we don't have to get into this if we, if we don't have time, but Paul, you posted a video on your Instagram yesterday that actually, um, one of my other friends sent to me, about uh, it was from Dr. Erickson. Do you remember this video? Sure. The guy from California. Um, I wanted to talk about his video because I think when when I watched it at, at first, I'm like, oh my god, like he's absolutely right. Like this is really stupid that we have this shutdown. But then I started looking at the way that he was using his numbers, and I thought, oh, I need to like talk to someone who can help me understand if he's using the numbers correctly. C- can we talk about this video real quick? Yeah, sure. Okay, hey, so while you guys are talking. I'm gonna use the bathroom real quick. Okay, baby bladder. All right, right sounds good. So, just for uh, the people listening to this, this is a um, he was a doctor from California, and he was talking about how um, he was talking about how there's a really low percentage of a death rate, and I want to talk about how he got to these numbers. So, he talks about, uh, and I'm not going to go through the whole video because it's about an hour long, but specifically, he talks about New York and he talks about California, and the way he approaches the numbers is he says. Hey, look, in you know, in New York, we have had uh, what's the number? We've had uh, uh, eight hundred, you know, thirty thousand tests, and forty percent of those tests have come back positive. Therefore, we can say that forty percent of New York has the coronavirus. So the population of New York is like nineteen million, and then uh, you know, forty percent of that is I don't know six, seven, eight million, something like that. So then he takes the number of deaths, which uh, right now is sitting at, when he obviously said this video, the numbers were a little bit different. But for all intents and purposes, uh, you know, New York's got 22,000 deaths. Divide that by the 8 million, you're looking at, you know, a 0.2% death rate. So the question I have, Paul, is, is this, is this really the best way to go about estimating how many people in the state of New York have it? You take 
the, the, you take the number of tests, you say 40% of the tests come back positive. Is it okay to then say, well, since 40% of those tests came back positive, well, now we can assume 40% of, of New York has, has the coronavirus. Is that safe to say? There's a lot of, there's a lot of assumptions there. So this is similar to the study that was done at Stanford, presumably that Joshua was referring to earlier, and that's by Johnny Anitas and Jay Bhattacharya. People mm-hmm. can find that one. It was in Santa Clara County. Mm-hmm. If the numbers he is using, and I'd have to go back and look at the video from Dr. Erickson, are a random sampling of people in, in New York City, then you could, you know, all other things equal, you could say, you know, oh, 40% of people who are asymptomatic, right, mm-hmm. Have, mm-hmm. have positive coronavirus, that gives you some indication like, wow, this is a lot more widely distributed than we thought. It's very dangerous to extrapolate that to the broader population mm-hmm. because it is like this is what we were talking about in the beginning. The problem with statistics is that we don't know what the sensitivity and specificity that is, which are reflections of the false positives and false negatives of this test are. So mm-hmm. let's take a population of a thousand people in okay. New York City. Say we pull a thousand people off the street and, and they have no symptoms. And you say, let's test you for antibodies, right? This is an IgM or an IgG antibody. And we say, okay, look. It's a blood test, Paul? It's a blood test. Yeah, it's a blood test. Yeah. Um, That's what Rogan's using right now for his podcast guests. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Wild. So, and and does does Rogan want them to be positive or negative? That's a great question. (laughs) Because if they're positive, positive, presumably they're immune. Like, I mean, you know, like maybe you'd want only positives because it's not going to tell you about active infection. Anyway, right. yeah. Wait, uh, wait, it wouldn't? If someone has an active infection, they're going to have antibodies, right? Well, but if somebody has a, is cleared the infection and they're immune, they're going to have antibodies too, depending whether you're looking at IgM or IgG. IgM mm-hmm. is the antibody we see in an immune response that's acute. And IgG is what takes a little more time to develop, you know, and, you know, if they were asymptomatic, we wouldn't be able to tell, right? But it's, it's very, it's a weird position to be in. If you have negative yeah, on both, the conversation. I'm sorry. never been exposed. So say we took people on the street in, in New York City, a thousand people on the street, we can either do RT-PCR or we can do antibody testing. Both of those tests has to be standardized against something which is a gold standard, but we don't really have a gold standard for coronavirus, right? right? That's how you calculate sensitivity and specificity. That's how you calculate false positives and false negatives. We don't actually know how good the tests we are doing are. Say we get... You know, if, if, if his numbers were accurate, just make the assumption, say if we have a thousand people on the street in New York City who are asymptomatic, 400 of them test positive for coronavirus with antibodies, saying, mm-hmm. wow, 400 of you have actually been exposed to coronavirus. And again, they're asymptomatic. So we can look at IgM versus IgG. Do they have an acute infection or have they developed antibodies? Are they immune? Mm-hmm. In that case, we might say, well, that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty remarkable if 40% of people in New York City have actually been exposed. Mm-hmm. And, but then we have to say, well, what if the test, how many of the thousand people did the test miss, right? What right. if people actually got exposed, but the test missed those antibodies or the antibodies cross-reacted, mm-hmm. right? And the other side is how many of those positives are not actually coronavirus? They're another right. antibody that looks like this antibody to coronavirus. That's a false, that's a false positive, right? Mm-hmm. And you could also get a false negative. How many people who have been exposed to coronavirus didn't actually develop antibodies? Well, that's mm-hmm. a false, essentially, one, that's one way to say that's a false negative because uh, you know, that person actually got exposed and didn't get an infection. So 
the numbers are all very, very fluid. And, and what he's doing, we're all trying to extrapolate this number. This goes back to what Joshua said. We all want to know the denominator. Right. We know how many people are dying from coronavirus, although the numerator is also suspect, you guys, because if you listen to Dr. Erickson, he will tell you what I've heard from other physicians, that many hospitals and staff at hospitals are being pressured to list coronavirus as the cause of death or as a comorbidity in order to help with reimbursement from the federal mm. government. So this gets into, yeah. you know, really tough, like, are the coronavirus numbers inflated? And you're like, oh, my God. Because the, mm. the federal Let's assume they're not right okay, now. Let's assume but, they're uh, not. But, but many people believe they may be because mm-hmm. if you die with coronavirus, does that mean you died from it, right? Would you, who knows? Right. right? And but it's right. like, like if you if you have a heart attack while you're driving and the, the car crashes into something, right. you might have died from the heart attack. But they're going to say the car crash is the is the cause of the accident. Right. Which which, by the way, I think that if you let's say you have heart disease and then you get the coronavirus and you die. I, I mean, yeah, you would have died eventually from the heart disease. But I'm assuming that in a situation like that, the coronavirus is going to uh, it's going to speed up the death. So in, in my in my opinion, and Paul, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. In my opinion, it's it's okay to count that that person as a coronavirus death, even even though let's say they were going to die next week of heart disease. If coronavirus sped up the process, then that that would go as a coronavirus death, right? But I, I agree with that, Paul. Real quick, I, I do agree with that, Ryan. I think there are some more egregious examples. Now these okay. are one offs, and I don't know how statistically viable they are. But let's say you got a shot in in the the face. And you came in and they tested you for coronavirus. So, well, here's another coronavirus death. Um, there are some examples like that, but I think they're so. Uh, I don't think that they're they're statistically relevant. Yeah. Well, but go back to the Diamond Princess. Mm. You know, sixty percent of people are asymptomatic, right? So, what if you're part of the sixty percent of people on the Diamond Princess who's asymptomatic with coronavirus and you have a heart attack? But I mean, but that's also assuming, and this is going back to the speculation and you make a very good case for this, Paul. So I'm not saying that this is even crazy, but it is speculation to say that a hundred percent of those people were exposed to it. I mean, but I'm just talking about, I'm just, I'm not talking about people who are asymptomatic. I'm not talking about people who are exposed. I'm mm -hmm. talking about people who tested positive and didn't have symptoms, Right. These, if okay. you look at, if you look, so on the diamond princess, again, 3,500 people, only, only, um, only 20% tested positive for coronavirus of that 20%, 60% are asymptomatic. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. So you're They're talking testing about positive, right? Okay. And then, and you know, the diamond princess is elderly people, right? Somebody goes in and has a heart attack. Somebody mm-hmm. goes in and has a pulmonary embolism. Somebody goes in and then gets a pneumonia, that's not related to coronavirus, but they're, and they're, there's 60% of people who are asymptomatic, right? Mm-hmm. And so they're, but they're going to be positive for coronavirus okay. Okay. and they could die from something completely else. And that's, again, this is where it gets to be. And, and if you look at that number and we see that asymptomatic number reproduced multiple times on the mm-hmm. USS Theodore Roosevelt, on the Diamond Princess, if 60% of asymptomatic people are, are, you know, are, ha- you know, are, are, are being found in these tests, is the numerator, you know, half of what it, it's numerator twice what it should be? Like that's mm-hmm. when we get to be probably not, but is the numerator 20% less than, you know, than, than, than in reality or is the numerator 20% more? Mm-hmm. I don't know. These are the discussions we have to entertain. And so we're yeah. looking at, we're looking at adjustments to both potentially 
the numerator and the denominator. The denominator is what everybody wants to know right now, but mm-hmm. and, and then it's and we're basing everything off that that fraction. Like, should we or should we not shut everything down? How many people are going to die? And again, mm-hmm. the whole thing is predicated on the on the notion that you will save lives. That's what we're talking about here. Whether we're talking about economics, whether we're talking about medical deaths, we're talking about lives and what is the greatest cost to our brothers and sisters, our families, right? Whoever, our, our brothers and sisters in like the royal sense, you know, our big community as humans, we're trying to save lives. And, you know, that's, that's what we're trying to decide here is how big, how big is this number? How many people have actually- You know, it's vote? interesting because I, I do agree we're trying to save lives, but I've, I haven't really looked at it as saving lives as much as slowing the deaths to not overwhelm the healthcare system. Well, that was what um, we talked about in the beginning, right? Yeah. And yeah, then yeah. You, but then you come back to a metric, is the healthcare system overwhelmed? In a lot of places, it's not. Right. No, you know, that's absolutely... Look, can you say that's because of the, the, the stay-at-home order or not? I mean, that's where I think it starts to get murky too. So then you I have would, to speculate, right? It's like... Right, exactly. <laughs> and so to me, and this came up in the podcast with Kirk Parsley, and I thought this was a very good point that he made. If you look at the, the flattening of the curve, if you look mm-hmm. at those two graphs the flatter curve goes right up to that sort of glass ceiling, goes right up to that dotted line. Mm-hmm. You don't want your curve to be way below the line of what the healthcare system can, can, have, can handle right. because then it goes on for years and years and years, right? Mm-hmm. Then, it, then it stretches yeah. out over, over a year and then we're, because you can't do that. Like that's, that's the nuance of the shutdown. And to me, that, that gives us some semblance of an answer to say, at a local level, is your healthcare system overwhelmed? No, no. Yeah. Then ease the social distancing. Right, right. So, so, so Paul, if, if titrate if, it, if I'm talking about this like an economist would, which I'm not an economist, but economists would say you want your you, you want your hospitals to be 99.9 percent full because of this, or 75. Uh, you know, right. I mean, right. no. As an economist, you want to be as close to 100 as, sure, as possible yeah. uh, in, in order to sort of maximize. Uh, things and, and and you want peak efficiency. Now we're never going to get that, nor should we get that. Try to get that. We should never try to get peak efficiency from healthcare. Um, that's a whole other argument. Uh, but we what we don't want is four know, percent of the hospital full when we thought it was going to be one hundred and twenty percent. To Ryan's point, maybe almost certainly the social distancing is leading to fewer people ending up in the hospital. To what extent we don't know. But if they're going to end up in the hospital anyway, we we would prefer that people uh, we don't we don't prolong the suffering over a uh, radically protracted period of time. Mm-hmm. Right, and because that has a lot of downsides, as we're seeing with other with other things. And I mean, there are doctors being laid off right now. You know, uh, yeah. there's nursing there's nursing staff being laid off right now. There's ER staff being there's people that are that's furloughed. unfathomable. There's yeah. people that are furloughed in the medical world right now because that's, that's wild. I cut yeah, my that's, hand that's very badly. Unexpected. I cut my hand very badly the other day in the ocean. Um, and I went to an urgent care and I was, there was no one else there. Mm. I was the only person in the entire urgent care. I didn't go to the emergency room. I could have, but I think the emergency room probably would have been empty. And now I'm, I'm going to try to wrap this up pretty soon, but let me, let me just ask you this, Paul, what, um, and I think one of the bigger reasons that we are more concerned about this, and I know Ryan has brought this up, is uh, it's so different from the flu in many ways. And and one of those ways is it still seems to be killing a, a disproportionate amount compared to, say, the, the flu, the annual flu, of 
of healthy people. It's killing healthy people. Oh no. And, and, and so you're, you're saying that's not necessarily true. No, no, this is, this is the, this is the media porn. Mm. This, is, this is the media mm. porn. The statistics are very okay. clear that this is a, that this is, um, you know, predominantly, um, elderly and people with comorbidities. And this has been something that I've been beating the drum on my social media about repeatedly. If we mm-hmm. look at New York data, if we look at China data, the risk is much higher if you have diabetes, much higher if you have hypertension, much higher if you have, if you have cardiovascular disease, much higher if you have all of these chronic diseases of insulin resistance. This is a lifestyle. Yeah, if you're a smoker, if you're diabetic, pre-diabetic, exactly. these types this of is a life. This is, this is a lifestyle issue. And that's what I've said. And that's what I'll say on the podcast of mine that comes out tomorrow. You know, this is a pandemic of metabolic disease as mm. much as it's a pandemic of a virus. This is exposing how unhealthy we are as a population of Western Americans. Now, and it also, and it gets to be more nuanced, it also exposes the vast limitations of how our healthcare system qualifies disease. If you don't have a diagnosis of cancer and you don't take any pharmaceutical medications, does that mean you're a healthy individual? No, you know, and there are 40% of individuals in this country who are obese, 40% and 70% are overweight and mm-hmm. 88% have at least one indication of metabolic unhealth, 88% mm-hmm. in this country. That is a low HDL, high triglycerides, high waist circumference, you know, a thick neck, um, hypertension, all these things. So we look at the health of our population, it's abysmal and it's just, it's just catastrophically, you know, sad to think like, this is not a disease of healthy people. And any news outlet that is claiming that, in my opinion, is doing an injustice, and that is news porn. Are there individual It's cases? killing some healthy people, right? Show me the case. Show me the case. Because the cases I have seen are, of course, there's gonna be there's gonna be, you know, an anomaly somewhere, right? Is it is it killing five otherwise healthy people? Potentially. But many of the cases that are reported as healthy, and again, this gets to be, quote, crass, and I don't mean it to be, are obese, right? They clearly have underlying things. People were saying, you know, uh, the prime minister of the UK, they're saying he's healthy. He's clearly pre-diabetic, you know? He's overweight. He's, you know, he's clearly overweight, right? And you can, you know, you can find people. Like, if Trump got coronavirus, uh, you know, people would say, he's a healthy 70-year-old. And you look at the guy and you go, yeah, he's probably about 45 pounds overweight. If not, you know, like, that's not healthy. And you don't have any idea about his nutritional status. This is where the definition of health falls woefully short. How are we defining a zinc deficiency in these people? Are you telling me that everyone who's dying from coronavirus, they're doing a nutrient analysis and they don't have like an underlying zinc deficiency or riboflavin deficiency or folate deficiency? Like that's how we have to be healthy if we eat nutrient rich food, which is one of the reasons I'm interested in this whole thing. You know, it's like you show up, like you tell me what, what is health really like? You can't tell me that. And it would be fascinating to look at these on a case-by-case basis. I know there's an Ironman triathlete who suffered greatly with this. And you think, people say, look at him. He's the, he's the, the epitome of health. And you say, yeah, he's also the epitome of a guy who's pushing his body way beyond what we're supposed to be doing. And is probably completely immunocompromised because he's yeah. in survival it, mode. It's, it's not traditionally him. immunocompromised. He's not on chemotherapy, but it has a similar result by, Absolutely. by pushing your body up. Yeah. They could say, they could point to a marathon runner and say, this guy ran marathons and he died from it. And I'm saying, okay, let's take a step back and think like, you know, maybe running marathons is not an evolutionarily consistent thing to do. So how do we define <laughs> health? And I am so interested in those individual cases, but by and large, this is not something that is hurting, quote, healthy people, or even just healthy people as you and I would define it, you know? 
Yeah. And couldn't we say this all out there? Couldn't we say this all to our Patreon audience and just say if you fa- have any examples of healthy people who have died from this, please comment and 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 show us. I, I would love to to see this and send it over to Paul so that um, we can we can further the discussion maybe in, in the Patreon comments as well. And I'd yeah, love I need to know what people are eating and, and what their diet yeah. is like. Right? If somebody sends me a case of a vegan who's healthy dying from coronavirus, we might have something to talk about because I don't think a vegan diet is healthy, as anyone who's heard me will say. You know. It's probably nutrient deficient, right? So, yeah. But I and I think that this is. You guys went straight to this this point. This is like this is like bait on a hook for a fish, right? Like this is what people want to see because that is what inspires the most fear. That single point that healthy people can die from this, and that's mm-hmm. why I think what the media is going to keep hounding on. I've seen young people die from this. Yes, and if you look at the absolute numbers of people who die from cardiovascular disease, they are the same in the decade between 30 and 40 and the decade between 40 and 50. And, you know, mm-hmm. like if you look at the numbers, like the, the, the percentages are different because of the number of people who are alive and those different things. But Kirk also mm-hmm. brought this up in the podcast I did with him. In every decade of life, there are people who die from heart attacks. Right. And so, you know, we can't say yeah. that just because you're 35 Infant. years old, you're healthy. What if you have unknown we, cardiovascular disease? Couldn't we say though that you know, regardless of COVID or, or, or influenza or whatever, that if you're unhealthy, you have a higher percentage of dying. It's not just with COVID. And, and to your point, Paul, you said 88% of people, they fall within a, I forget what you said, but basically, you know, 88% of the country is unhealthy is what I heard you say. Am I, am I misunderstanding that? They're, they're, yeah, they're metabolically un, unhealthy. You can okay. buy these metrics. Yes. 88% so, of the country. So since 88% of the country right. is metabolically unhealthy, then they they are going they are you know at a higher risk in general for, for for any disease. So this COVID that comes along and it's going you know it's going to have this higher effect on eighty eight percent of the people. Yes, I agree with you. It is a uh, it is killing mostly unhealthy people. But the fact is, is like yeah, the majority of Americans are unhealthy. So with that with that being said, I mean there should be and again this is just my my opinion. I, I can't even sit here and you know say this is fact. But my opinion says that. We've got to take it seriously. If 88% of the people right now are, uh, you know, susceptible to this, then we really need to go out of our way to make sure that, you know, as few people are getting it as possible and especially, you know, trying to slow it down. Right. But, but is there any effective way to do that? And we just don't, there probably is not right. If there were a way, right. Basically the way to to do it would be to put 88% of people on Mars. (laughs) <laughs> right. Like, call up Elon Musk because I've heard that argument. We need to be careful. Yes. And the more important thing that comes out of this is those 88% of people need to realize how unhealthy they are. We need to be talking right. about the real issue, which is underlying metabolic health here. And this is a challenging conversation, but we cannot protect, we cannot protect 88% of people in this country indefinitely. We, you know, again, you cannot, we cannot hide from the virus. That to me is an untenable strategy. Yeah. Um, and, and, and right. again, 88% of people will not die from coronavirus. I think no, you can pretty, no. pretty safely say that. Absolutely. So there's more nuance there. What is it about the 1% or the 0.1 or the 0.3? I think the number is going to end up at 0.3 mm-hmm. or 0.2. What is it about that 0.3 to 0.2 that makes them most susceptible? Why did they die? But to say that, that healthy people are dying is a, is a real oversimplification here. And I think it is can, just... Let, let me ask you, Paul, what, that point three that you're talking about, so just so, because this is where the denominator problem comes in. 
Like right, right now, what you know, when we're looking at deaths versus corona confirmed conver- coronavirus cases, is that how we get the percentage? Like right now, I'm looking at World of Meter. It's two hundred nine thousand deaths. There are three million twenty five thousand uh, confirmed cases. Do you take that two hundred nine and divide that by the three million twenty five? Is that how you're getting the, the percentage, or is there another way to look at this? That's how you do it eventually. But again, we will never test seven and a half billion people for coronavirus. Right. Well, well I, but, but it is. So that's how, we talked about that with the flu, too. You have to extrapolate based on the data. You, you, you don't get a precise number because you have to make some assumptions based on the data. With the flu, we don't test seven billion people. And, and with coronavirus, we're not going to test seven billion people. But you'll be able to make some assumptions on that denominator with enough data over a, a prolonged period yeah. of time. Right to- now, we don't have, haven't had enough time. I totally agree with that. And especially with the coronavirus, I think even more so than influenza, because, yeah, I've gotten the flu and I certainly haven't went and got tested for it. But with coronavirus, because it's, you know, there's so much hype around it right now. And, you know, it's it's so dangerous, like I'm saying that in air quotes, um, that people who start to feel sick, they're automatically going and get it, getting tested. So I would think that the confirmed coronavirus cases, that the number that we see, it's, I mean, it's safe to go with that denominator. We don't have to add another 40% or another 60% or whatever the number may be. I think we can go with whatever, you know, the, 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 final, the final number comes down to be because people who feel sick, the fact is, is they are going out of their way to get tested right now. No, Ryan, you haven't been tested and you were sick. Yeah, but I, I wasn't sick like that. What I didn't have the... Like, have yeah, but, virus, but but so many people are asymptomatic. You don't know. I, I, if I had to speculate, right I'd say you have the antibodies. Yeah, you can't get tested right now. How are you going to get tested right now? Yeah, I mean, I guess where are you going to where are you going to go to get tested? People are being does, told. To stay yeah, you're away right. My wife hospital. and daughter tried to go to the hospital to get tested. They turned her away. You can't so, go to the hospital. You're being told to stay away from the hospital yeah. right now unless you have life threatening symptoms. We're not testing everybody. Okay, so so I, to the point to, to the point though of going back to speculation is, I'm speculating. And, and, and you guys are speculating. And, and, and that's, where, that's where I find this so difficult is that it seems like there are, there's just not anything concrete we can go by. It's, it's, it's pure speculation at this point. So it's, it, that's why, again, I keep going back to the numbers we do have. And, but even then, I guess what, what I'm hearing you, you gentlemen say is that even this 3,025,000, that's still a speculative number. It, it, that has, I mean, it's less speculative than than the overall number, but that's probably not as accurate as you believe it to be. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I, if we accept, and, and, I, and I'm not saying you guys are wrong. It's just this is where it gets murky, and that I, I this is why I just land somewhere in the middle of, yeah, we shouldn't have this lockdown where we that we have right now. There's probably a better approach, but it certainly isn't business as usual. But again, I don't know what that answer is. Um, but that's why I tend to go in the middle is because it's it, there's just nothing definite that we can say about this. It's, it's well, let's so, talk about so what, let's talk about what a quarantine is. I mean, the and, and actually, this is where I agree with your your guest from the other day. What was his name? Uh, Parsley. Yeah, Kirk Parsley. Yeah, he was another physician. Yeah, yeah. He said he said uh, he, he talks about how this isn't a quarantine. This is a self isolation, but. The, the word quarantine comes from the Venetian word that means literally just means 40 days. And, and so um, when you look at the definition of it, really you know, the, the, the most fundamental definition means a period of 40 days. And the reason that they used to do this back in the 14th and 15th century uh, is that ships would, re- would show up in Venice and the people would be isolated there for 40 days to let the Black Death Plague uh, die off, 
Um, and, and I mean, they obviously didn't have any understanding of, of germ theory and, and viruses, et cetera, but they just knew by letting someone sit there for 40 days, it was, it was actually a biblical thing. It had nothing to do with medicine or, or, or science. Um, and, and, and now basically a, a, a quarantine just means a state of enforced isolation. Now that could be by the state, it could be self quarantining, uh, but it just means for a period of time. It doesn't mean so it has to be to be 40 days. Now, here's what I'm worried about, though. I'm worried that I am here. I'm literally sit, sitting here talking to you from an ivory tower. I'm in my apartment building, which happens to be an ivory tower, um, a small two bedroom apartment, but still. And I have there are people like my brother who lost his factory job and all of the other factory jobs. I had to stop reading that list. It was so long, Ryan. By the way, those are just factories. I didn't go into hospitality. I didn't go into to restaurants. I didn't go into hotels. Yeah, no, the, unemployment, into- the point was made, man. The unemployment is unbelievable. It's, it's right, right. Crazy. And I just didn't even go into all of these other sectors. And so you have a place like Dayton. It wasn't exactly booming economically. And and it's being hit like that. And you know, uh, Jerome, my brother, loses his job. He's he's now going to he, where? Where is he working? He's I mean, he's doing the heroic thing, and he's working at an Amazon fulfillment center. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, his likelihood to now get coronavirus has gone up significantly yeah, by 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 working at this the center. He he was working by himself building cabinets and stuff, and now he's he's uh, he's working amongst all these other people mm-hmm. in a, a much more stressful environment that is paying him significantly less money. Uh, so he he went from middle class to to you know, to not poverty level but just above the poverty line um and for a family of of four and um he has mortgage to pay and 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 uh, a young daughter and his, his other daughter just graduated high school yeah, he's and, got family and, members and, living with him yeah right 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 and so so there are there are all these factors and by the way he's he is not alone there are so many people that aren't going to be like me and 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 you and Paul, where it's like, okay, like we have a lot of inconveniences here, and we're going to make less money during this, and I'm going to have to tighten the belt a little bit, but ultimately, I'm going to be fine. I'm not going to suffer from from poverty from all of this unless everything were to just truly blow up, mm-hmm. um, and 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 so, I'm, I'm what I'm worried about here is. I'm sitting up here because I, I agree with you, Ryan, especially until very recently. I've been like this this quarantine thing seems like the best thing for us to do. But I'm worried that I'm preaching that at the expense of people like Jerome and, and the hundreds of other people that were in his factory totally. and, and and the 30 million people across America who is who like it's the best thing for so you far. and I to do. But is it the best thing right. for all 330 million Americans to do? Yeah. Yeah. I'm telling them to I feel like I'm telling them to suck it up or something. Right. And, and I, I don't want that to be the message from this either. No. I just don't know what the solution is. It sounds to me like Paul is saying we should probably open things back up completely. That's what he would do if he were the earth czar. Mm-hmm. I would um, still, I would still it, shelter the people who are immunocompromised and who are elderly and frail. So, yeah. and again, like we would have to have some sort of gradation. We can't shelter 88% of people, but I think we keep the healthcare system as the glass ceiling and we we let the people who are the most robust get back to work i think that the best way to protect you joshua my parents who are 70 years old is for those of us who are robust to be exposed and to develop herd immunity Mm. um and, and you know probably you know you know like we if enough of us get exposed and develop antibodies the virus will never get to you joshua 
And, mm-hmm. and I hope, of course, I hope that if any of us got exposed, we would all make it through just fine. And I think yeah. that that's the case among the three of us. Mm-hmm. But, you yeah, know, like, I think, so. I think that that's how it's going to work. Um, and I haven't heard epidemiologists or virologists that I've been looking for, you know, you know, very fervently suggest another model that that sounds uh, viable to me. Mm-hmm. Now, let me ask you about some potential recommendations. What do we do now? Is it, I mean, you said you mentioned the N95 mask, which, by the way, are impossible to get at this point. Um, it, Lysol, hand washing. Um, I mean, the obvious diet, sun, exercise, sleep, the sort of free medicine out there, things to help with our immune system. I don't know, vitamin C or zinc are, are, are potential options there. Saunaing if you can, but obviously if you don't have the sauna in your house, then you don't have that option right now. I can't stop touching my face, so I know that's advice, but <laughs> good luck. If you're watching the video of this, I've touched my face 413 times already in this hour-long conversation. <laughs> yeah. So I think that for me, it starts with lifestyle. It starts with sleep, nutrient-rich diet. Those who are familiar with my work will know that, that I believe that's an animal-based diet. Um, but I will, I will leave it to everyone to make that decision individually based on how- Eat they- an avocado, Paul. <laughs> Go wild. <laughs> Go wild. Uh, but, uh, you know, like I'll let everyone look at the science and make their own decision about that, but do something intentionally with your diet that you, that gives you the most nutrient density that you can get and what you believe is the best thing. And, and beyond that, there is, there is nothing out there that we know will help you. You know, I, I, there's really, you know, if you want to take a moderate amount of vitamin C or a small amount of vitamin C, sure. Knock yourself out. I cannot say that's really going to save you from this. I think you're much more likely to be way better off if you're getting enough vitamin A, vitamin D, from real sunlight, vitamin E, getting enough zinc, selenium, manganese, magnesium, getting enough vitamin B12, B6, riboflavin, thiamine, uh, and and a, new, a number of other you know nutrients that are you know predominantly found in animal foods. But you know, as a, as a population of people, we don't think about food in terms of micronutrients. We think about food in terms of macronutrients and calories. But right. if people thought about food in terms of micronutrients. And I did a whole podcast on my podcast, which is Fundamental Health, about coronavirus. I went over all these articles. Nutrient deficiency is so critical for your immune system to function. It just is. Hmm. Nutrient adequacy. Yeah. So I think if we, if we fit, found out anything here, Ryan, it's that Paul wants people to die and you want people to be broke. <laughs> he wants to send everyone to Mars. And yes, and I want martial law. Exactly. <laughs> um, so there you go. And I'm just a man of the people. I want what's uh, best for everyone. You know what, Josh? I think the be- the be- the point that I have uh, that I got the most out of this, or maybe a perspective shift that I have had, is that you know when I responded to Sean's tweet, what I was saying is is that when people don't have the ability to self discipline, the government has to come in and make everyone go to your rooms and do the right thing. Now, now the now mommy and daddy have to ground you. And when I when I responded to Sean. That's pretty much what I was saying is like, unfortunately, the government has to play the role of mommy and daddy. And the one thing that I have realized is that that is coming from my perspective, which I too, I am not in an actual ivory tower, but I certainly am in a metaphorical ivory tower. And for me to sit there and say that it's okay for the government to do that, it's it's really hard to prescribe that to all 330 million Americans. Now, it, it doesn't mean that I have an answer on what what you know we should do or what the government should do. But I certainly understand how, yes, me, Ryan Nicodemus, I'm going to be okay. And I'm fine if the government shuts, grounds everyone in their room. Um, But that's probably not, 
going to be best for 330 million Americans. And, 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 and if anything, I've just realized even more so now the, the privilege that we have, man, the, the, how lucky, how fortunate we are, you know? Yeah. I think it's a great place to end. I want to encourage folks to check out Paul's podcast. Um, it is called fundamental health and uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Paul, thank you so much, brother. Appreciate your time. Thanks Appreciate for you, on, you guys. Always an enjoyable conversation. I love you both. <laughs> love you too, love man. You too, man. See, See you guys. Thanks patrons. All right, Chris, you there? I am. All right. So I was hoping to talk to you really quick, uh, sort of get the other side of this. Brian and I talked to, to Paul Saladino yesterday. And um, here, here's ultimately, let, let me just express this. Ryan and I have been taking this coronavirus thing very seriously. We shut down our studio uh, way before any state had their lockdowns. Uh, I think March 10th was the last day we were in the studio and we decided to have all of our staff work from home. So we've been taking this very seriously. But at the same time, we're, we're trying to ask this question, like, what is appropriate? And you know, the question that's coming up is, when, when do we reopen the country? And I think that's a highly individualized question hmm. at this point, right? Because uh, I think it's different for everyone. If you're someone who is really, really healthy, like, like yourself, you may not be as at risk, or maybe I'm wrong about this, uh, to be hospitalized or die from COVID-19. In fact, uh, I think Paul Saladino said that uh, pretty much if you're healthy, you, you, no one healthy is dying from it at all. And I, I've seen information to the contrary of that. And, um, but also there are people who are immune suppressed or they have underlying conditions or maybe even, you know, congenital conditions that, that make them at much higher risk of, of catching this infection. So, um, I, I want to talk to you about maybe why should we take this seriously? Mm. Well, I should obviously uh, preface this conversation with the fact that, you know, I'm just some douchebag with a podcast that programs computers and not an infectious disease epidemiologist or any kind of expert. But, you know, I do spend a lot of time interviewing experts in my podcast, and they talk about a lot of topics that are related to long-term overall health, right? We care about all-cause mortality and health span. These, type, these are the types of words that we use. Living as many quality years as possible perhaps extending life, but probably not. And I see a lot of people that I think of as peers, maybe they're not, but I think of them as peers, uh, making these comparisons between COVID-19 and metabolic health. And I think it's entirely inappropriate because there's just completely different classes of problem. You think if I decide that I'm going to sit on the couch and I'm going to order all of my food via the internet, I'm going to eat pizzas and burgers and ice cream and drink soda and all the rest of it, then sure, I might get diabetes, cardiovascular disease, cancer, and I caused my early demise. But really, the only person that I affected with those decisions was my own health. And I may drag down you know, some of my close friends and family, and maybe I may, might place an overall burden on the healthcare system. But for the most part, it was my decision, my death, my grave, right? Whereas with this infectious disease problem, it's a totally different class of problem, completely different class of problem where my decisions affect other people's health, right? If I'm in Santa Cruz here, if I decide to go surfing and blow snot rockets or I'm on the trail 
on a mountain bike and I'm blowing snot rockets and there's five guys on bikes behind me, that decision to blow a snot rocket may have just affected, like maybe the guy behind me gets it and he's also asymptomatic and the guy behind him gets it and he's also asymptomatic, but he's living with his grandma that's got, I don't know, some sort of comorbidity and she dies, right? Like some decision I just made killed someone I don't even know. Like that's a totally different class of problem. And it's now, easy now, to... Now, now, Chris, what... What uh, Paul was saying is that effectively, you know, when we talk about flattening the curve, right? it doesn't mean that fewer people are going to get this disease. It just means that the same number of people are going to get it over a longer period of time. Right. And, and eventually we'll reach some sort of point of herd immunity so that people like that grandma will hopefully not be affected by it. So, right. So if the same number of people are going to be, I guess the, the question I'm trying to ask is... Uh, if the same number of people are going to be affected by by this thing, then uh, does it make sense? Yeah, I, I don't really care about the overall economy, the health of the economy, but I do care about individual families and their ability to pay their rent. And if all businesses are closed in a particular state or city, and that that prevents someone from being able to go to work, and that can lead to a a, a cascade of unintended consequences and right and so i think it's it's trying to weigh weigh the two there and and right now we've said at least in, in many places there's a need for a complete shutdown and i know for me that that makes sense i i'm, I'm terrified of, of getting covid19 i'm definitely terrified of ending up in the hospital or being on a ventilator like those things sound awful to me mm. but um it also doesn't mean that i should i i should sit here and tell everyone else that maybe they should stay home too, or maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't know. Well, one would hope that we're buying time is what's happening here, right? So the technologists are out there trying to find a solution to this problem. And maybe it's a vaccine. Maybe it's monoclonal antibodies. Maybe it's soluble ACE2. Maybe it's some other existing medicine that can be used to treat the disease. But one would hope that's what's happening as we all maintain social distancing and limit movement is you're just buying those technologists time to develop some sort of therapy. Right. But, but, um, you know, we, we don't know how much time that, that we need. No, you're right. Point. You, I don't think anybody knows. No, exactly. The, you know, they made all of these drug trials make, I mean, there is nothing for coronaviruses now. What makes you think there's going to be something in the future? I, I totally agree. So you get into this, this difficult question, which is when does the, the intervention become worse than the disease? But I would argue that, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm really borrowing from Nicholas Nassim Taleb here when I talk about this stuff. So these people that are comparing obesity and diabetes with infectious disease, that's naive empiricism, right? It's like assuming that what you've seen in the past is going to help you with future predictions. And, and it's just wrong. And the greater the uncertainty, the more you don't know about the disease. So we're starting to see now young people who are suddenly having strokes and heart attacks, but no other symptoms. What the heck? Well, it turns out that the SARS-CoV-2 virus binds the ACE2 receptor on the endothelium, and that causes endothelial dysfunction, and it messes with the renin-angiotensin system, makes the blood slightly more clotty, and then it's probably worse if you already had shitty endothelial function, hence the comorbidities predict mortality. But you're seeing young and healthy people just having strokes. What the heck? What's going on? Like, it seems to me there's a great deal of uncertainty. And the more uncertainty there is, the more certain it becomes what you should do. You should stay home. You should cover your face when you're out in public. Like, it becomes really clear what you should do. 
Now, the reason we cover our faces isn't just to protect ourselves. And, and if we have like access to an N95 mask, that will protect us. A, a handkerchief is, is not going to protect me from SARS-CoV-2. But um, it may, it may not matter. So that's, I mean, I think that that has been another great misunderstanding. I think that Jeremy Howard, the data scientist, has put together some really good resources, Mask for All, I think, .co, I think it is. But he's done some really brilliant work looking at the data. And I think the great mistake that everybody made was assuming that it was a binary variable. So I, in the beginning, like I was seeing these like really beautiful animations, you know, of ping pong balls bouncing around inside a box. And so when the ping pong balls touched, like the two both became infected, you know, and then you could see the exponential growth with this lovely visual model. But actually the infectious disease doesn't work like that. And that viral load should be represented by a continuous variable. And it's not just like, oh, you have one viron, now you have the disease. Like, no, no, it just doesn't work. Like the viral load matters. And that's probably why you see people who are working on the front line are much more likely to succumb to the disease. It's just because their viral load is so much higher. And so even if your T-shirt with a paper towel in the middle of it wrapped around your face is not perfect, it doesn't matter. It's going to pre prevent a lot of the aerosol that comes out of your mouth. And uh, also the other way around, right? Like some aerosol that comes out of somebody else's mouth. And it's not perfect, but it's a much improved situation. Well, this, this infuriates me to a great extent because I feel like we're drinking from a fire hose of information. There's so much information out there right now. And what Ryan and I have been trying to do is simply ask questions and make room to have right. some conversations about some difficult questions because... Uh, as you said, I'm, I'm certainly not a, a virologist. I'm not an epidemiologist. Right. I, I, I don't know. And all I can do is really ask questions at this point. And, and the question that we've been gra grappling with on, on this podcast is uh, trying to find that balance between government intervention and regulation right. and also the sort of self-discipline that is necessary. Because the, the truth is we shouldn't need for the government to say, hey, you all are on timeout and you have to stay in your house sort of thing. Uh, we should be able to, to figure that out on our own. But unfortunately, we're at a point where some people um, are, are – they have a knee-jerk knee reaction in the other direction where right. it's thumbing their nose at authority and, and not realizing that's putting other people – at jeopardy and and then of course the additional information that's out there chris like i, I just talking to paul he's like well of course health, healthy people aren't getting or aren't dying from this but i've seen conflicting reports to that and so i don't even know what to believe at this point right and, and i find that very dangerous because it's nothing to do with authorities right like they can't enforce a cordon sanitaire even if they wanted to right like what are you going to do like the national guard doesn't have hazmat suits for every single officer nor do the police. Like, how the hell would you ever even enforce a proper quarantine using the authorities? The only thing that holds this cordon sanitaire or quarantine or lockdown or whatever you want to call it in place is social cohesion. It's a shared belief. It's like money, right? Like, you believe that this piece of paper is worth something. And the, the only thing that holds it together is our shared belief. And so it is with the cordon sanitaire or lockdown is that it's like the social stigma is the only thing that holds it together. You know, it's like, a, it's really just an illusion. And so that's why it's so dangerous for, you know, these bloggers to come out and say, you know, question this. I mean, for fuck's sake, you were already exchanging all of your personal information, your privacy for entertainment on Facebook. Like you're not willing to give up that same privacy for a little bit of <laughs> like to be preventing 
uh, infectious disease. That seems nuts to me. Right, right. I, I don't think the questioning part is the dangerous part, though. In fact, yeah. I, I think it's it's dangerous to not be able to question. Yeah. You know, we had this conversation, in fact, like I'm not an anti-vaxxer uh, person. Right. Uh, but I am a vaccine questioner in, in in the sense that like I want to know what you're getting ready to put into my body, and right? And I can make the decision as to whether or not that is appropriate for me. And and for me, what I've decided is yes, it is appropriate, and it's okay right. to do you know certain vaccines. And, and for my daughter, I've decided it's okay to do certain vaccines. But I question it first because I don't want to just say, well, I think you're an expert. You have a couple letters behind your name. Go ahead and do whatever you want to do. Right. Uh, I think it's important for us to question. The, the problem is there are authorities now uh, and, and ex- so-called experts or even experts who have differing opinions. And unfortunately, I, I, I quite often don't know what to believe mm. at this mm. point. Now, let me ask you this, Chris. Um, what about the unintended consequences? Because as people lose their jobs and as the this sort of this tailspin, it leads to to a great deal of of poverty, and and that can lead also lead to a great deal of death. So it's not binary. We want people right. to die, or we want people to to be broke. Those aren't those shouldn't be the two options. Um, and unfortunately, we have to be comfortable with some some number of of death. I know that sounds really crass and I hate, I hate to even say that, but the truth is the analogy that we talked about when I was talking to Ryan and, and, and Saladino was car crashes. Like we've accepted 30 to 50,000 deaths in the U S in order to be able to drive faster. Right. Uh, and, and if we were to limit that to five or 10 miles an hour, we could get those deaths to almost zero. Right. But, but the we, difference is like, it's pretty like we understand that risk, right? People have been driving cars for a fairly long time. And I think we have decent enough data in order to make decisions about mm-hmm. like how risky that is. And also, again, it's, you know, you're, it's not quite true. It's the same as the diabetes and cardiovascular disease. But again, like your actions on the road are fairly limited in what impact they can have on others. I mean, sure, you can drive head on into the car coming the other way, but you're not going to take down the entire planet with one, you know, like on the road like that. You know, it's just a different class of risk, right? Mm -hmm. And so when there's this uncertainty, the more certain it becomes what we should do. Stay at home, cover your face, just wait until we know what the hell's going on. Right. And, and so that, that's the thing, knowing when we know what's going on, because we've even accepted, again, I hate saying this, but 80,000 deaths with the flu, up, up to 80,000 deaths in a year with the flu. Right. And so we're, we, we aren't on quarantine for the flu every year. Right. Uh, and, and so the question then becomes, and I hate to make this because it's not an arithmetic problem. This can't be solved right. with just a spreadsheet. There are real people with human lives that, that, we're, that we're talking about here, right? Mm-hmm. But but uh, there is some number where we're like, okay, we're, we're willing to accept that. We, we've all decided that we're willing to accept 80, right. 000, up to 80,000 deaths with the flu. And it certainly seems like the coronavirus, uh, uh, the novel coronavirus is – is, is going to be more than that had we not done these social distancing measures. But we, we don't know what that number is for us to say, okay, let's, I don't think we're going to go back to businesses as, as usual. You and I have talked right. about that offline, but to try to find some sense of normalcy that doesn't mean us staying at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know what that number is. Yeah, I don't either. I'll be honest with you. Yeah. In the UK, they actually quantify it. Malcolm Kendrick wrote about that on his blog recently. 
I think it's called the quali. So it's like the quality of life years and mm. they put a price on it. And if your intervention is more than 30,000 pounds per quality of life year, we ain't doing it. And if you do the math on the, the COVID-19 lockdown, it's just not worth it. Like they wouldn't do it. And so, yeah, wow. if, if it fails that quantitative that test. But again, it's like, I just don't know that you can, like the type of arithmetic, the type of statistics that you're used to doing for this type of, I'm not sure they work for this new class of problem. Right, right. And, and that's why I'm so hesitant to even mention it. I mean, and we yeah. can have these conversations. I think it's important to have these conversations, but it's also important to say those three words. I, I don't know. And, right. and those those words are powerful. I'm I'm not on this podcast trying to prescribe anything to anyone, telling people other than I will prescribe this. Be cautious. I, I, yeah. I think it, it yeah. makes sense for us to, even if we, even if you truly believe in your heart of hearts, this is overblown and things could get should get back to to normal. And yeah, I I can understand that impulse, but understand that other people are affected by it. And even if you believe it's not true, realize the anxiety and and how scared other people are right now. And and our decisions affect other people, and and right. we can't we can't stop that from happening. Right. Exactly. Yeah, I think it probably the thing that's most relevant is to tell people what you're doing, right? Rather than tell them what to do. And I'll tell you what I'm doing. I'm staying at home. I do go out on my bike still, but I cover my face when I'm in public. And, you know, that's all we do. Like, my wife is the only one that's going to the store. We're sharing some grocery shopping with our neighbors. We have uh, older people living on both sides of us. And we text them and say, is there anything you'd like from the grocery store before we go? And my wife absolutely wears a mask when she goes into the into the store. And, you know, like that's the only time we're leaving the house. And the kids have not left the house since this all this started in over a month. And by the way, they don't give a shit like that. They're the least affected of all of us. Now, are there any resources you would recommend to people who, who do want credible information on, on this pandemic? Yeah, I mean, that's another thing, isn't it? Like, it's really hard to find good information. You know, the person I've stuck with throughout this, and I have made a part-time job out of trying to like follow this and understand it, is, I've forgotten the guy, Is the his first name is Roger. And I, I think it might be Schultz, but he has a YouTube channel called Medcram. And he's an intensivist that likes to review the literature. And he makes these Khan Academy style videos. And I found him Medcam? to be- very, Medcram, yeah. So I see he's also has he's also a doctorpreneur, you might call him, right? So he's an intensivist. He works in a hospital setting, but he's also running a business where he makes these educational videos for healthcare workers. And I think they get continuing education units for passing his exams or whatnot, getting the certificate. Uh, so he has a YouTube channel called Medcram. It's M E D C R A M Medcram. Okay, we'll put a link. To he's that in, he's in the show he's notes. super good, and he's thinking a lot about alternative therapies meaning things like hydrotherapy right so there's some like really interesting stuff on how the innate immune system responds to hot and cold exposure mm -hmm. like you know the sauna and then a cold shower or you can even do it with a hot bath and cold showers like improves innate immunity and you need the innate immune system to get acquired immunity so and again he's telling you what i this is what i'm doing i get home from the hospital having worked with covid19 patients and then i get straight into a hot shower and then i get freezing cold and then i go straight into the hot like, so he's telling you what like and here's the science if you want to see that but here's what i do is probably the most important bit mm. 
Yeah. And I can tell you, tell you what I'm doing is I've been staying home. I've been avoiding contact with just about everyone. Uh, there will be a, a time in, in the not too distant future that we decide to go back into the studio to record podcasts again. I don't anticipate us having guests on right away. And so it'll be just me and Ryan and probably podcast Sean over in the corner maintaining some bit of, of social distancing at first. And as we learn more and as we get more comfortable with being closer to other people, then we can make those decisions when the time comes. We don't need to jump in face first and realize that maybe there's no water in the pool right now. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Well, Chris, I appreciate your, your additional perspective. Is there anything else that, that we need to talk about with respect to this crisis? No, I don't think so. I think that's about it. Yeah, reread all of the Inserto series, all of it. <laughs> and then you'll see what I'm talking about. <laughs> you'll well, find uh, the, the uh, naive empiricism is one topic that's relevant here. And the expert problem, right? Somebody who gets to say something without any contact with reality, right? So you can come on with some podcast and you can spout some nonsense and tell people what to do. And then if they do it and it turns out to be the wrong advice, then nothing happens to you. You still collect your bonus, right? Like, I think that's a problem. We call that like the I every tower or the expert problem. See, it's a huge problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it definitely is a problem. And that's why I wanted to get your additional perspective here. It's definitely considerably different from Paul Saladino's. And while, while neither of you, and he even said, and acknowledges as well, he's not an expert on the topic. Mm. Um, he has, I mean, he obviously has uh, training through through medical school and has a deep understanding of, uh, of right. viruses. So I find and these people, he's not the only one. I've seen lots of people, um, actually Phil Maffetone and uh, Paul Larson just published a paper, uh, which I think is in a similar vein. <clears throat> and it's factually correct, but bogus, right? It's mm. like factually correct, that. but bogus. It's like they don't say anything that's not technically correct. So when you say things like comorbidity, predicts mortality and only old people are dying of this. It's factually correct, but it's bogus in that if young people take that advice, they're going to make the problem much worse, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the one thing that we want to avoid throughout all of this is we don't want to make the problem worse. So the question at the end of the day is what can we do to make this better. And for right. many of us, that will mean getting back to work in certain capacities. There are already plenty of people that I know who are working essential jobs. When my brother was laid off, he went to go work at an Amazon warehouse and people are being delivered food and, 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 and goods be, because of him. So there are people who are still working right now. In fact, I would argue he's at a much greater risk of, of getting uh, COVID-19 yeah. because he's working in that warehouse as opposed to the the factory where you had a great amount of distance previously. Right. And, and, and so the question is there, there are things to get to back to a sense of, or get toward a sense of normalcy, not back to, but toward a sense of normalcy where we're, we're going to be in closer contact with people in the not too distant future, but we don't know how long that is. And I also think it will be geography dependent to a great extent. There are some places that have been hit harder and we may find that there are, more people who uh, there may be a, a herd immunity, for example, in a place like New York City before there is in in say Fargo, North Dakota, right? And, and, and so these are individual considerations, whether it's at an individual household level or individual community level, that that also need to play some role in in the calculation of quote getting back out there. 
Mm -hmm. It's really hard though, isn't it? Because the virus doesn't care about time. You know, I, whenever sure. I see any graph and there's time on the x-axis, I think, what does what, the virus doesn't give a shit about time? It is, I mean, so it's the same is true here in Santa Cruz County. It's kind of crazy. There's like these weird second order effects. Like there's been so few cases, the hospitals are empty. And so they're asking nurses to reduce hours. It's completely bonkers, right? So it's almost like it's working too well. Or it's just the virus isn't here yet. You know, the virus doesn't care about time. It's just like they're waiting for somebody who is asymptomatic, but infectious perhaps to come into Santa Cruz and go surfing, right? Where the sun's come out, it's a nice day to go surfing. I've, you know, nothing wrong with me. But actually, you're an asymptomatic carrier, and so you bring the disease into Santa Cruz County from wherever, and then and then suddenly, you know, like that, that whatever you saw on the y-axis completely changes, and it was unpredictable by looking at the time on the x-axis. The virus just doesn't care about time. And you're much more worried about this than you are, say, influenza. Yeah, I, I mean, it seems like a completely different disease to me. I, like I, again, I like I, I, it does worry me when you you know that the experts that I've been used to learning from they come out and they draw on all this evidence from influenza. It's like it's a totally different virus. Like, how do you even? I just don't know. I just I just I'm uncomfortable with that level of uncertainty. Right, but it is it's a respiratory. Yeah, thing. And I yeah. Think, so there, there's some there's some overlap there, even though they Definitely. are completely different viruses for sure. And, and I think. I mean, it does make sense to to sort of look at the closest things that we have to to, to find some right. level of comparison. But right. what we don't want to 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 happen is, you know, imagine if this was was Ebola. Maybe talk about that for a second. Oh yeah, so Ebola was completely different, wasn't it? Because you just didn't get asymptomatic carriers. Like by the time you were showing symptoms, like you were in a really bad state. So it was like the virus is almost too deadly. So if uh, we had an asymptomatic version of Ebola, yeah, imagine that, that. that's the worst case scenario because isn't the mortality rate on Ebola like 60% or something? Absurd. Oh, it's, it's, uh, in some contexts, I think it's over 90%. Oh yeah. my gosh. So, so, so I don't know whether this is like, this is like kind of now I'm really, you know, out on a limb here. I don't know what I'm talking about. But yeah, I mean, that seems like a perfect storm to me. You know, somebody's written Paul Larson and uh, Phil Maffetone wrote this paper. They called it a perfect storm because it was the combination of the virus plus the existing comorbidity. But yeah, for me, the perfect storm is infectious disease. It has nothing to do with the comorbidity. And it has the incubation period of the SARS-CoV-2, but the disease severity of Ebola. Like That would be pretty bad, right? Like it is, I think it is a theoretical possibility. It certainly is, and and the only, the only the only difference is with Ebola. Before, by the time someone uh, was showing symptoms, they were so bad they it was really difficult for them to to pass it on to someone else. Yeah, but and in fact, I I read about I did a I watched a lecture by some infectious disease epidemiologist from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and that was on the Royal Institute YouTube channel. And he was talking about how one of the strongest predictors for Ebola infection was having attended the funeral for somebody who died of Ebola. And so what? in that particular culture, they, it wasn't like, you know, you know, you go into a casket and get incinerated. It was, you know, uh, not even in a casket, you know, it was like you would come and visit the body and there'd be these elaborate ceremonies where you were, were bathing and touching and all this oh, stuff. And so wow. that person that died of Ebola, they were covered in bodily fluids that were contagious. And so people who were attending the funeral were then contracting the disease. And that was the strongest predictor for mortality for Ebola. Like, holy shit. Like, yeah, I ain't going to that funeral. <laughs> Mm, yeah, yeah. 
And, and I think one last thing that's worth pointing out is most people who have an opinion about this, whether it's you or uh, Dr. Saladino or me or Ryan, who even have different, uh, slightly different opinions on you know, when we should sort of reopen sort of the thing. And in fact, I think we have the same opinion. It's just we, we disagree on what government's role should be mm. uh, in, in the whole thing. But uh, I, I think what's important is that we, we care about people and we want people to be well. And, and that, that doesn't just mean health-wise, but also oh, yeah. financially well, because if you don't have enough money to pay your rent or mortgage or, or God forbid, put food on your table, then you're going to experience a different kind of, of dis-ease, you know, poverty. And I know this because I grew up really poor. Poverty is in and of itself a, a type of disease. And especially if you have kids and it's hard to, to, um, to provide for them, then you, you are... <clears throat> you're going to struggle in, in, a, in a different way. And so we're trying to prevent that while at the same time trying to prevent the spread of, of a right. deadly virus. Right. Yeah, it's tough. Not saying it's easy and just saying it's a different class of problem. Yeah, I think the answer is stay home if you can. Be responsible. Right. Wa- wash your hands. You know, all, all of the, the trite advice that we already know at this point. Cover your goddamn face. That's the problem. There's no culture. I think Jeremy Howard, again, has been good here. In the Asian countries, there's a culture of covering your face in public when there's a chance you might be sick. Whereas in Western societies, there really isn't. And I remember when I was a kid, it was kind of weird if you picked up dog shit, you know? Do you remember that? Like before people used to pick up dog shit. And when people did start picking up dog shit, I can remember oh, you as mean, a kid. You mean, picking- uh, you mean to like to throw it away? I thought you meant to pick up to play with it as a kid. No, I mean, to pick it up to throw it away. Say, like, when I was some the, weird stuff in the UK. When I was a kid, um, you didn't, like your dog would take a shit on the pavement in an urban environment and you would just walk on and nobody would think anything of it. <laughs> yeah, I swear know, to God, right. I'm not that old. I'm only 44 years old and that's how it was. And then suddenly, I think what happened actually, I don't even know the disease or any of the details, but I seem to remember there was something in the news. A couple of kids got this infectious disease and they went blind and it was attributed to, maybe it was falsely attributed to uh, contamination, oral fecal root from dog feces. And it just became the new cultural norm to pick up dog shit and put it in the trash after your dog had taken a poop. And it just became, and now you're, it's the other way around. Like, what kind of human are you if you let your dog take a dump in the, on, the, on the pavement and then you just keep walking? Like, and, yeah, and so it is. And so we just, yeah, there's, like, there's no culture of mask wearing in, in Western societies. And so but maybe that's that we're going, that's, You think that's going to be the norm going forward, that we're going to have to wear masks to the grocery store a year from now, two years from now? Well, let's hope now? not. Let's not hope not. But I think that's the problem at the moment. You know, when I'm out on my bike on the trails, people think that I've got the disease or they're certainly giving me dirty looks for some reason that I'm not used to getting. Right? Like maybe I would have got the dirty look anyway, even if I wasn't wearing a mask. But I just don't. Yeah, it's like it's weird, isn't it? Like when you're not used to it, then seeing someone wearing a mask, having part of their face covered is just is weird. Yeah. Just a few months ago when we, we were still flying, we, we flew out to... Um Salt Lake City, and we, Ryan and I were wearing masks. This was before there, I think, were any confirmed cases confirmed cases right. in the United States. But we, you know, we were at LAX, and so we knew that you know, the virus had a chance of, of spreading for sure. And people looked at us like we were insane. And this was just like yeah. two months ago, Chris. This was not a long yeah. time ago. And yeah, they I remember looked you at us the like we were, yeah, pariahs. Like, what, what are, they, are they? Are they? Do they have Ebola? Yeah. Yeah. You guys were on it early though. You know, I mean, I think you get a similar reaction now, maybe not quite so severe, but yeah, I was still, I was still thinking it was like some sort of, 
I don't know, like a flash in the pan or not the real deal. I was definitely later uh, to the, the party. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've been taking it very seriously and, and I'm overly cautious with things like this. And I think Sam Harris has done a very good job of, of presenting yeah. the sort of other side, the, the opposite of of the Saladino side. It's not even the opposite because Saladino is well-informed and, and he's not one of these guys who's like holding up a, a sign that says, have you seen this? I, I saw this, uh, this guy that was holding up a sign that had a, a face mask with one of the like no smoking symbols above it and it said, my body, my choice. And well, it's kind of not, is it? That's the point. Right. And that's the thing. It, the, no, this is not the abortionment argument or abortion right. argument, which, which we, you know, is a totally different thing. And I'm not going to dive into that. Um, but, but it is, uh, it is not just your body, your choice, and it's not just you and your, you know, your, your immediate family either. It's all these people you're protesting around. Right. Right. And I think the great, t- you know, there's a couple of blogs, another one that I follow that I think is good, but was kind of a rubbishy post was uh, the Slate Star Codex guy did a, a big long post that more than you ever wanted to know about masks. And he tries to review the science on mask wearing. And it's an epic fail. And the reason it's an epic fail is because you can't do a randomized control trial to show that masks work, right? It's like got too many variables. It doesn't, RCTs just don't work when there's more than one thing changing at the same time. And then they change over time as well, right? So it's like something that, so sleep is a good example of this. It's really hard to show that your intervention works for sleep with an RCT because a lot of things change in people's environments from day to day. And so the RCT is probably not the right way to acquire that knowledge, either for sleep or for masks and the danger is you know you you draw some faulty conclusion from some randomized control trial and then you use that superficial and cosmetic element of science to then override people's natural tendency to do the right thing like imagine if it was like so with the spanish flu a lot of people died and they were like bleeding out of all of the you know out of their nose and their mouth like imagine you just watched your husband uh, like choking his own blood on the kitchen floor or whatever like or outside whatever you know and what are you going to do? You're going to cover your face when you go out in public, right? Like, and that's a natural human tendency to do the right thing. And so yeah. I think that's another concern is using like science with a capital S, you know, like to overcome people's natural tendency to do the right thing. Yeah. And I, I, there was a time where I thought I might've had COVID-19 and I, I, mm-hmm. um, um, I had the rhinovirus and, but I was still, I was especially diligent about covering my face when right. I, I knew I was sick and, and, by the way, um, we're learning how how few people are actually exhibiting symptoms, and so there's so many people that are asymptomatic, and in some right. populations, uh, the the data suggests it's up to forty percent, and and so if you have almost half the people who have this thing who are asymptomatic, that means you or I could have it. We better cover up our face, not to pr- just protect us, but to protect the people around us. It's a, right. it's a common courtesy. I, I was talking to my former partner, uh, the artist Colleen McCullough, and she uh, mentioned, you know, it's almost like this fascinating art project. Even if the mass did nothing, which we're, we're not saying that at all, but even if, if they did nothing, there's it's almost this, uh, this collective uh, sign of solidarity in a way right, right. where, where you, you know, like for breast cancer, where people wear like the pink ribbons and stuff, this is the, this is the, the SARS CoV-2 equivalent of it's that, the, except the, maybe the they actually panky. serve a purpose. <laughs> yeah. 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 Except that th- this may have a, a dual function. Not only does it serve a purpose, yeah. but it, it shows, Hey, 
I recognize that I'm not just protecting me, I'm protecting you. We are in this together. Yeah, exactly. And I think that was the slogan in the Czech Republic that you can look into. Jeremy Howard talked about this. It was something like that. My my mask protects you and your mask protects me or something. They put it on billboards and it was quite effective at getting people to wear masks. Do you see yourself going out to restaurants anytime in the near future? No. <laughs> restaurants were a toxic environment for me at the best of times. I just can't. I'm so sensitive. My gut is, I mean, you know what I'm talking about because you've been through oh, the yeah. same. I just like, it's Cracking. I'm like a clown walking through a minefield, right? Like, there's just no way I'm getting to the other side of a restaurant without diarrhea. I'm just not. And so I don't even, and you could argue that I know SIBO myself, but usually I don't, I get, you know, sometimes I forget and I think, fuck it. I'm just going to eat what everyone else is going. I don't even care. And I still get sick. The only uh-huh. restaurants I can go to, like occasionally these restaurants pop up, Primal something or other did a restaurant in Santa Cruz where yeah. their whole mission was to, a mission heirloom as well, that went bust too. Well, not it went bust, like the people who started it decided they didn't want to do it anymore. But, you know, they started with this, like, we're not going to contaminate people with seed oils and this is going to be a gluten-free facility and all these amazing, like, values that I could really get behind. And finally, there was somewhere I could go and eat out and my wife was so happy and then they go bust. <laughs> they always go bust, right? Because people don't yeah. give a shit. They just, they just buy food on price and nothing else. Taste and price, that's it. Sure. Yeah, there's a place here. Uh, I think we've we've taken you there before, Belcampo. Oh yeah, um, Belcampo is pretty good. Yeah, Belcampo is pretty much a safe zone for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so there there are a few exceptions there. But what about other places that you used to? Are there places you frequented but before that you don't frequent now that you could see yourself going to at some point? And if so, when? Yeah, you know what? We never. I hardly go anywhere. I live. I'm so boring. I live here in Santa Cruz, and nine times out of ten, the reason I'm leaving the house is because I'm on my bike and I'm going for a ride with my dogs. I honestly don't go anywhere. I sometimes go to coffee shops to meet people in town. Yeah, but I miss that. We, I miss going to bookstores. I miss yeah, going to uh, the movie theater. Oh, I yeah. don't go many places either, but. I, there are occasionally, there's, there, literally, there's like four or five places that I'm like, I wish I could go back there. Right. Yeah, I know. I do. I think you're right. Yeah, and we enjoy traveling. We quite, you know, we go places. We go back. Yeah, on airplanes back to the UK. And yeah, my sister was supposed to get married. Like everyone else, you know, like travel plans have been cancelled. But yeah, I'm not that bothered about restaurants. They're just going to poison me anyway with something else. (laughs) (laughs) When do you suspect you'll be flying again? Oh, goodness. I don't know. Yeah, I'm terrible with predictions of the future. Yeah, terrible. (laughs) Yeah, you wouldn't fly, uh, say, in May, though. Uh, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. It's actually good, you know. So this family that came to live with us, so we're pretty good now, right? We've got our whole tribe right here. We don't really need to go and see people. They're all here, uh, kind of, <laughs> almost all here. But yeah, it was a great time for them to travel. We made these plans before any of this kicked off, you know. And so they ended up driving cross country during the midst of it. And of course, like you know, there was nobody on the road. Like they didn't see any cars the whole way here, and gas was a dollar a gallon until they got to California. Mm. It was a pretty amazing time to drive across the country, probably a once in a lifetime opportunity. Yeah. But I'm not getting on a plane anytime soon, that's for sure. That's a good place to end it. Chris, thank you so much. I want to encourage folks to uh, check out Nourish, Balance, Thrive. You have helped me immensely with my health journey over the last several years. And I am a better, much more healthy human being as a result. I really appreciate you, brother. I love you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Dan Minimalists.